Good morning, everyone. Uh, a very warm welcome to this BTOG Masterclass, uh, Leading Your Lung Cancer Pathway. So I'm Matt Everson. I'm a chess consultant up in Greater Manchester. Um, and my co-chair for today's event is Sanjay Agarwal. And it's, it's really been Sanjay's uh, vision to bring this masterclass together uh, and this excellent program of speakers. Um, the lung cancer pathway is incredibly complex. Uh, and I don't think anybody has, um, has, has got to the point of delivering the level of standards and speed that we all want to deliver. And so today's um, uh, masterclass is all about uh, discussing tools and ideas and inspiration and a forum for discussion for, for clinicians that, that do this day in, day out, that are leading today, that are tomorrow's leaders. Um, so I hope it's a really useful um, uh, day's session of exploring those challenges and solutions. And it will be all the more better for lots and lots of interactive discussion because we all face these challenges we're going to talk about today. Um, uh, and I think we can all be able to take things away um, if there's lots and lots of interaction. As I say, uh, Sanjay's driven the idea and the format uh, very much of, of this, um, uh, this programme. But it's been Dawn and Gina from BTOG that have put all the hard work into, uh, into arranging it and, uh, and putting this together. And I think BTOG's response to the educational needs during the pandemic and converting to these online programs has been fantastic. Um, and so it's a huge thanks to, to Dawn and Gina that we're, that we're here today and we can put on events like today. Um, I think there are a few housekeeping things just to go through. Um, you can submit questions at any point during any of the talks and myself and Sanjay will pick those up and put them to presenters. Uh, you don't have to wait till the end. Please do put your questions in there. Uh, if you're thinking it, then others will be thinking it as well. So do ask it. Um, at the end, you, uh, after the event, you'll be emailed to provide your feedback. We do need that feedback to make sure that the programs BTOG is delivering meets the needs uh, of its members, uh, and you need that to get your certificate. Um, and we'll, um, for anyone that joins uh, after this remotely, they will be able to apply for the CPD uh, and, and put this into their diary. So in terms of the agenda today, it covers a really wide range of areas of, of what a lung cancer service looks like, benchmarking that service, service development, leadership, teamwork, and governance. Really, I think all areas that, that cover lung cancer care um, uh, in 2021. Uh, just a quick highlight of the next BTOG webinar. It's on Wednesday, the 10th of November, half five till half six. Um, and uh, on supporting patients with thoracic malignancies. So please do think about joining that. Okay, so I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna go straight in and kick things off. Um, so I'm gonna be talking about um, a lung cancer service in 2021. So it's a really uh, broad um, topic, this. And as I said, I'm, I'm a chest consultant. I work at um, a particular hospital uh, in Greater Manchester. But I'm also the clinical director for lung cancer for the Cancer Alliance here. And so this, this topic of what is a lung cancer service, how do you deliver a lung cancer service, is something that I've um, been trying to approach for the last four years in that role. 
And today's talk is very much a reflection of those last four years um, and how we've tried to think about certain areas of the pathway, uh, how we've tried to address deficiencies in different areas of the pathway. And I'm going to try and present that story. So it is really focused on work we've done in Greater Manchester. And that, so we have to say that, that um, different areas have different challenges depending on infrastructure and resources that can, that can vary. So this is quite specific to, the, to our area. Um, so do bear that in mind that um, uh, other areas may have their focus in different areas, but I think there are concepts of, uh, that are generalizable on how we've approached some of the, the, um, the problems. So there's a lot of Greater Manchester reference in here, but I hope there is some learning. Uh, and again, as I say, it's a reflection on, on the journey we've been on in the last few years. Slide. So the, the overview is... Um, I've thought about breaking this down into different components of the pathway and, and then put a little bit into each of those components. I thought for today's um, audience um, that I will focus on these first four areas. Uh, I have got some slides for treatment and survivorship, but time's just not enough to go through those. But I have, if there's any Q&A with reference to those, I, I, I can use those. Um, but for, I've split this as, prevention, early diagnosis, and that's symptomatic presentation, early diagnosis of symptomatic presentation. Lung health checks and screening is a whole different area, um, but the outflow from those programs is the same pathway. Um, but so I haven't really touched on that in this talk, but I think there is relevance to the outflow of those programs. There's the front end of the pathway, and that's the really focused early part of CT, CT reports, triaging that CT and actioning that CT. The staging pathway for those that do have a suspicion of lung cancer, uh, up to the point of MDT and then treatment and survivorship. And throughout that process, there's a focus on faster, earlier diagnosis, high quality service, experience of care, performance monitoring. Those are things I'm gonna try and pick out in those things. Um, and I think the first two, um, prevention and early diagnosis, but perhaps often don't often get all that much all that much attention in terms of thinking about a lung cancer service. But I hope in some of the slides I show that that they're an absolutely key part. I really believe that uh, lung cancer services, leads of lung cancer services, have a huge responsibility in these areas. Uh, so prevention, tobacco control. As I say, I think that there's a massive area for for lung cancer services to be involved in here. Uh, next slide, please. And for, for lung cancer in particular, there's a wealth, absolute wealth of data about how important it is for someone to stop smoking during a lung cancer diagnosis. Uh, their mortality is better. Survival is better if they stop smoking with survival curves that rival any systemic therapy agent. Yet you don't see this in um, in presidential symposiums at major lung cancer conferences as interventions that have huge differences. Risk of recurrence uh, is reduced by stopping smoking. Risk of developing a second uh, uh, primary is reduced. And there's really substantial evidence for that. So treating tobacco dependency is a massive thing for us as a lung cancer service. Uh, next slide, please. And then with, um, there's a big movement that's well beyond lung cancer at this point, and that is driven by the long-term plan that is going to commit to funding the treatment of tobacco dependency in acute care trusts. 
And so there's lots of work going on at the moment. And I use those words really specifically, treating tobacco dependency, because there's a huge shift away from lifestyle choice to the chronic disease of tobacco dependency or addiction that has really good medical management that we as clinicians can oversee and we can be really proactive in. And the, our experience in Greater Manchester is, has been we, as part of the, the Lung Pathway Board I chair, we created a subgroup specifically for tobacco control. And one of the outputs of that is the CURE program that we developed and implemented it at the hospital I work at and has since been rolled out across uh, the region. And it's an inpatient tobacco dependency treatment service with proactive clinicians that are prescribing and specialist practitioners that are that are, are providing an opt-out service that visit all smokers that are admitted and offer them support at the point of admission and at the point of discharge it's had some really successful outcomes one in five of all smokers being abstinent 12 weeks after discharge um, at a very cost-effective intervention uh, next slide please and i say that because and i, and I put that background in because that's project has been the vehicle to then address how what we do with smokers coming through the lung cancer pathway and it's it, it's had a knock on domino effect that we've now got a, a tobacco addiction guidance for all of greater manchester so the g triple mg is greater manchester medicines management group who developed guidance for primary care secondary care to adhere to and this um, is in line with the new NICE guidance that's going to be published about the effective treatments for tobacco addiction, uh, varenicline vaping combination NRT. And this gives us standardized protocols. And we can take those protocols and we can implement them into specific situations like a lung cancer pathway. Next slide, please. And because we've had a, this service, the cure service, the, the natural progression of that is we've taken the cure practitioners and we've put them in the geographical space where we run our lung cancer service. So that someone comes for, uh, to our rapid program that I'm gonna talk about shortly, um, and they're a smoker, they can, we run an opt-out service. They need to see our specialist practitioners. We as clinicians need to be prescribing and giving brief advice so that they get an immediate consultation then and there. They leave the consultation with a prescription and they leave with a follow-up or a referral to a community service. And I think that is the optimal service delivery to maximize the chance of reaping those benefits I've talked about, mortality benefit, um, the risk of recurrence, risk of second primary, all of those things. So I think it, it's that... Um, the lung cancer service can really take some responsibility of it. That's how we've addressed it here. We kind of, we started the cure project and that meant we've been able to provide the service in the lung cancer uh, uh, pathway. So it's a huge area for service leads to be thinking about and to be developing. Uh, next slide, please. So early diagnosis. I was talking about this, this is about symptomatic presentation. And again, this um, next slide, please. The, 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 it's so important this, and I think one of the best bits of work that has been done in early, di early diagnosis of symptomatic presentation has been the Leeds Early Diagnosis Campaign, this huge public awareness campaign of, um, that encouraged chest x-ray uptake. Uh, and there was an 80% increase in chest x-ray uptake for people with persistent chest symptoms. But they showed the biggest stage shift in lung cancer outside of a screening trial of an increase in stage one and two, and importantly, a reduction in stage four. Uh, next slide, please. So when you see that um, 
Uh, next slide, please. When you see the impact that COVID-19 had, where it just decimated the amount of chest X-rays being done, you understand now the impact that COVID is having and the awful impact we're seeing and are, are, are going to see when the National Lung Cancer Audit publish, it publishes imminently, that we've gone back 10 years in outcomes. Uh, next slide, please. So Lung Cancer Service has the responsibility to, um, uh, to be thinking about public awareness campaigns, enhancing early diagnosis, symptomatic presentation, chest X-ray uptake. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and we've done a bit of work in, in Greater Manchester about insight work into how do you overcome the barriers of patients presenting with uh, persistent chest symptoms? And, and that kind of um, insight work can inform the development of a public awareness campaign that can address those insights and those barriers. Uh, next slide, please. And we presented some of this work. Um, we presented it at BTOG early this year, the Do It For Yourself campaign that used a DIY theme to encourage um, uh, presentation. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and, th so th and these are the campaign graphics that have, that have run. Um, and we know that we've saw the biggest increase in referrals uh, following the running of this campaign. I think it just goes to show the importance that that lung cancer services, lung cancer alliances can have, not just thinking about the pathway, prevention, early diagnosis, massive parts of this and massive parts of service leads. I think a lung cancer service in 2021 focuses on those areas. Uh, next slide, please. I think primary care education is a, a massively important area as well. This is some of the work that Gateway C have done in, in Greater Manchester, um, the, an A to G infographic for primary care clinicians uh, with just simple reminders about false negative rate of a chest X-ray, 25%. Never forget, never smokers. Eighth commonest cause of cancer deaths, uh, lung cancer in never smokers, those that have smoked less than 100 cigarettes in their entire life. Um, and, and, uh, and so we're addressing the chest x-rays referrals through primary care education. Uh, next slide, please. So moving on to the pathway, so the front end of the pathway. And this is, this is really an area I think that every single hospital, every single lung cancer service can do a huge amount of work in. Uh, next slide, please. Because the simple process of getting someone into a CT scanner where there's a suspicion of lung cancer, getting that CT reported and getting them in front of a clinician uh, to act on that CT can take a significant amount of time. And when we then know that there's a complex series of tests, capacity issues with treatment further down the line, the more you can maximize that front part of the pathway, the better. And so we, we've talked for years now about the rapid program uh, that we've run at, at Withinsure that offers um, uh, ring fence CT slots every day of the week from eight till nine o'clock in the morning, because it's a period of the time where those CT scanners are not doing much work. And that we've set up the service so that those CT scans are hot reported at the time. Uh, there's a radiology review on the table, so someone can have a low-dose CT scan, um, and if there's no evidence of cancer, they can be taken off the table. But if they need contrast and staging, that can be, the decision can be made then and there. 
they're hot reported and so that patient gets off the ct scanner bed wanders down to our rapid hub where they get in front of a clinician who's triaged that ct scan and made a plan of what to do with it simple things we're doing the same number of ct scans same number of reports same number of outpatient clinics but it's just aligned into a next day ethos uh, and we've been able to show that the difference that that makes um, from um, now getting over 50% of our patients from the point of referral and including what the, the impact of weekends to in front of a clinician with a reported CT scan uh, to three days uh, and a median of three days. And that just takes out um, some of the immediate efficiencies for what is coming later in the pathway. And for the three quarters of people that don't have lung cancer on that pathway, we, they, our patients used to wait a, a, an average of six days. The result is there, but they waited unknowing, worrying that they've got cancer for an average of six days without being told. And we take that away. Uh, next slide, please. I think that, that, uh, that early part of the pathway is the focus for all trust because everybody can deliver that. And there, there could be things for the future about remote reporting that facilitates this um, in terms of economies of scale of radiology. The staging pathway, so we've got someone, they've had a reported CT scan, they're in front of a clinician in a, in a clinic room, there's a suspicion of lung cancer. We've now got to try and efficient, as efficiently as possible, get them through a rapid diagnostic and staging pathway and get them to an MDT. Uh, next slide, please. I mean, there's lots of ways that this needs to be addressed. And um, these are, this is just one example of the test bundles or algorithms that we put together, depending on the pattern of, of disease on CT. So that if you have this pattern, so what I'm showing here is either a central tumor or N1 lymphadenopathy, there is a series of tests that that patient needs, and that can be easily defined. They need a PET, they need a staging EBUS, they need um, a contrast enhanced brain, uh, brain stage two, nice guidance. Uh, they need a, a standardized set of physiology and they can be created into test bundles. So we're sat in front of a patient and we say, right, you need five tests. And we know what we're doing and we can, um, and we're immediately have got a plan. Uh, and these, these diagnostic bundles have now um, gone as a national document. They're called standards of care and they support the national optimal pathway. Uh, next slide, please. But then how, how do we deliver that test bundle? Um, and I, we've approached it as a, so there are some tests that are always going to be done at our hospital and we need access to them so we need ring fence slots and the things we we looked at were lung function echo and mr brains it's where we struggled so we sat the managers down and cds down of these areas and said lung cancer pathway massive problem biggest cause of premature mortality in our region delayed pathways harm biologically very aggressive cancer set the scene say right we need ring fence slots from you uh, and we, I made an estimation of the number we need and agreed a number of ring fence slots, how we would book into them. There was always concern back about, well, what if then that slot doesn't happen? We've wasted it for someone else. So we had to make prearranged agreements about when those slots, if they're not utilized, when they'd go. And so we've had a look at this about the impact of it. We looked at it for the three months beforehand and the three months afterwards. And it does make little differences, little incremental gains. One of the biggest things for us, though, is that 
we've maintained a pathway despite a significantly escalating number. And we're all seeing this. And we've got big screening programs coming online. So, that, so the volume of traffic through our pathways is increasing. And these ring fence slot has allowed an escalating volume um, and maintaining that and equally some improvements over time. But we'd want more from this. And I think there's more work to be done on this. A simple thing we've encountered is that we, we, we can't book into a, a ring-fenced MR, MR slot until the request has been vetted by a radiologist. And if that vetting process isn't done immediately, we lose the whole point of this ring-fencing. So we're now protocolizing vetting so it doesn't have to happen. Simple things like this. These are logistical things. But this is how lung cancer services work. And I really believe this is how... How, uh, what the future is because when that patient sat in clinic we want to say right you're having your lung function on this date and we can work it so your echoes on the same day uh, and your mr scans on this day uh, next slide please but then there are tests that are not individual hospitals there are tests that have to be looked at on a regional scale I think one of the things that has been a really good thing in our region has been a, a, the performance monitoring process we've done for eBus. Every eBus service across the region has come together now for the best part of eight years to collect data together and perform and, and quality assure our services. And there is now a national quality, um, uh, there is a national service specification for eBus, a lot of it which based on that work. Um, and these are the quality market, the quality uh, indicators that are in that national service spec. And we've been measuring ourselves against that. Uh, next slide. Uh, and we've been able to show. So over that over that time period, when we've been doing this uh, quality assurance, performance improves, and particularly where there were services that um, had issues with performance. Over time, you can you can highlight issues with performance, you can put interventions in place and you can track the improvement that happens. And you can see centers getting more and more skilled because the best marker of that is the prevalence of N2 and 3, because you can see that going down, which means you're staging harder and harder uh, scenarios where the prevalence of N2 and 3 is lower and lower, yet performance goes up. And that's a great thing. But the area where we've had real issues is in access. Uh, uh, next part, please. Uh, next slide. We have struggled to hit that target of um, that's set out in the national service specification of an EBUS within seven days. Uh, next slide, please. And we did a bit of work about capacity and utilization. And we have some capacity, but the utilization is not good. Some services running at maximal capacity, others have much more capacity, but it isn't being utilized. Next slide, please. So this lends itself absolutely perfectly to a single queue ethos. And we've been running a pilot recently. And that, this, the whole drive behind this is that you have to have a single booking system for eBus in our region. And you change the emphasis of the provider overseeing booking. So we get a referral, we'll decide when we book it, we'll let you know. Shift that entirely, the referrer picks the booking slot and that means they can have a patient in front of them day of their ct scan and say right you're going to have your ebus on tuesday or well, no that, that what they will say is we can do your ebus uh, but it will be at this hospital we could do that on tuesday or if you wanted to go somewhere the closest place to home we wait till friday uh, what would you like to do 
An EBUS is a bit complex, so it needs, is it staging, is it diagnostic? Do they have to have a PET first in line with NICE guidance, anticoagulation? So you have to build a system that incorporates those rules and then allows you to book the next available test when those rules have been completed. Uh, so we procured InfoFlex to do this and have been running a pilot in the region. Uh, next slide, please. I'm going to show you there's a bit of early data that's coming from it. So it's been running about probably four or five months now. And this initial data analysis shows that there's been a 12-day improvement in waiting times. So the average wait at the moment, is it, 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 it's, it varies, but it's about two to seven days through the single key process, and that's across the system. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is just a snapshot of that, um, uh, of the booking system um, and just one part of it. But you can see it just highlights some of these rules. So it, the referrer has to say, right, does this person need a pet before the EBUS? OK, what date is the pet? So that means the earliest possible date you can have your EBUS is the next day. So you then search and it will give you a list of the, net, the appointments from that earliest day. So you can look right. An EBUS is available the next day at this place and the following day at this place or in five days time at this place and sat with the patient. Like, when do you want to when do you want to do this? Uh, how can you travel? How is it? What, how's this going to work for you? Patient choice drives it, but it's the next available appointment in line with that choice. Next slide, please. Um, and we've been doing a bit of patient experience data because the worry is people don't want to travel. They're going to move around the region. So far, it's small numbers, but this is saying that people want to get the test as quickly as possible, regardless of travel. As long as you oversee that travel well, we've got to oversee it. The provider has to own it. So we get a referral, right, someone from the opposite side of the region needs to come here, but we're booking, we're going to oversee that, not hospital transport, we'll book the taxi. It's part of our service that we provide. Um, and this, this data supports that, and we're getting good feedback from it. It's early days, but I am convinced that this is the future of specialist diagnostics that cannot be done at every single hospital. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and PET, that automatically means patients sat in that room, they need to, we need to be saying to them, right, you need five tests. I've got ring fence slots at our hospital for these tests. You've got to have a PET before your EBUS. So what we've been trying to work on this as well, and it's hard, uh, but the first thing we've done with PET is a direct telephone booking. There is some issues about you've got to be really careful with PET. You can waste tracer if you if someone doesn't turn up for an appointment. So everyone is very twitched about that. Uh, and we've got to understand patients' needs. So there is a specific set of criteria that is need to make a tele direct telephone booking. But again, patients sat in a room we say, right, you need these five tests. I'm going to pick up the phone to the PET team. And whilst you're here with me, I'm going to talk you through it. Right. Are you diabetic? Are you claustrophobic? Do you need transport? Right. The next available we can offer you is at this place at this time. Can you do that? Yes. Right. Yes. We'll book that in. And then we put the online request in. Right. You need an e-bus after that test. So I'm going to go on to InfoFlex. And I'm going to look right after we know the PET date. So I'm going to put that in. So next, I know you need your e-bus. Can you do this date? It's, it's a logistical difficulty for the, for the navigators doing that. It can take a lot of time, but the benefit, massive. It's absolutely huge. And again, I'm convinced this is the future, and I think we'll get better at it as time goes on. Uh, next slide, please. 
Uh, reflex testing, I think, is massively important for a pathway. Uh, we've had to do work because we had real variability in this. We have not reached the point where every lung cancer test gets reflex tested. Uh, we're just not there. But we have agreed a regional protocol that, uh, that mandates a minimum data set so that stage three and four gets reflex tested across the patch um, and certain samples. So if you've got a pleural fluid and it's got lung cancer in, it is stage four. So it gets reflex tested. You don't need that information with it. And we've, so we've said that for, for anything that says stage three or four on it, anything that comes from EBUS, anything that comes from a metastatic site gets reflex tested. Uh, and I think this is an important thing. Next slide, please. Through this process, prehab, massively important part. Uh, we've got the prehab for cancer program. I think, again, it's an area that may not come as an immediate thought when you're thinking about lung cancer services. We have to have these services. They're so important. Massive meta-analysis published in Thorax last month. 50% reduction in post-operative complications from a prehab service. We know it works. It's all about implementation now. The way we've approached this in Greater Manchester is aligning with the community leisure centre. So GM Active is a collective of 12 uh, organisations that have 87 facilities across the region. That means we can access all of those through this Prehab for Cancer programme, transformation funding from the Cancer Alliance. You know, the Cancer Alliance funded Prehab for Cancer and it funded Cure to their great credit put the biggest amount of funding into prehab and, and prevention for, in tobacco control. I think that's what cancer alliances need to do. Um, so we have a program now we can refer. Initially, it was surgical patients. Now it is anyone having radical treatment. We hope to open it up even further in the future. And people will get rapid access. They're assessed. They're given a program and they can get prehab. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, we've published a bit of data on this uh, at the BTS recently, showing that you can improve things, you can get people fitter, you can improve quality of life. Uh, next slide, please. Um, uh, and this is just the pathway we use. I think in the interest of time, I will move on. Uh, next slide, please. So optimal diagnostic and staging pathways, test bundles. You've got a patient who's just had a hot reported CT scan. This is where we need to be going sat in front of you, I've got your report, right, I know what we need to do. If you're a smoker, you're seeing the cure team when you leave here. And we're gonna, you're gonna spend about half an hour with our navigator and you're gonna leave with a diary that says, your lung function and your echo here with us on this day. You're going for your pet on this time. You're going for your e-bus. Remember we talked about you're happy to travel to that hospital to go and have it. And the samples from it are gonna be reflex tested. And we go to MDT. I think that is the way we get to the optimal pathway. Uh, we're still a long way from it. You know, these are a lot of the things we're doing, a pilot phase. We've got to move to the expansion. So these are regional things. I'm convinced that single Q needs to be in lung biopsy as well. It's even more complex than EBUS uh, because of the diff different difficulty levels of biopsies, different levels of skills. Where can you go to have those things done? But I'm convinced that it's the future. And that this, for, so lung cancer services, uh, priority number one, get the front end of the pathway sorted with a rapid type program. The solutions for many of the diagnostic tests are regional and cancer alliances have to take the oversight for that. Uh, next slide, please. Through all of this, experience of care is massively important. Our patients in our region 
our user representatives that work on our pathway board have developed a bespoke uh, experience of care survey. It's called the Safe Seven because they created the concept that the ultimate part of experience of care is that they feel safe in our care. And there are certain pillars to that. Our patients designed this. Uh, and this is something we're starting to, to pilot as a, as a survey that can be used at points throughout the, the cancer pathway. Uh, next slide, please. So that's the overview. I, I've not gone into treatment and survivorship. There are things that, that, are, that can be done there as well and things we're doing there. But I think for today's audience, we're focused on those areas. We have to think about prevention and uh, early diagnosis. They're important. It is our responsibility. I truly believe that. Front end of the pathway, every single hospital needs to be thinking in and addressing this. And the staging pathway, there are ways of addressing the complexity. Um, we're in the really early stages of that, but I think it, it gives a really good idea of, how that, of what the future looks like for that. Uh, next slide, please. So I'm going to leave it there um, and happy to take any questions that have come through. Um, so I'm just going to flick across uh, to our Q&A section. So um, uh, just to read out a few comments. Great to see the, the treatment of smokers embedded in your pathway. Couldn't agree more. Um, absolutely. I just It's so important. Just on, on so many levels, it's so important for a lung cancer patient. So important. Um, and uh, But it, it's such a bigger thing than that. But lung cancer clinicians, they have so many skills that are so good in tobacco control. The discussion with a smoker, um, it, it needs a level of communication skills. And, and lung cancer clinicians are so good at that, that it, just, it marries up so well. I think they're just the perfect teams to be taking this on in the pathway and often even beyond it. For the hospital, a hospital needs leaders in this area at this moment, uh, and I think lung cancer clinicians can be that. Um, so we've had a question: How do you ensure the PET scans are reported pre-EBUS uh, and that the images are available? Great question. Um, it's hard; <laughs> you can't guarantee it. Uh, we've just had to set that system up that uh, in Infoflex. Um, the day you're eligible for an EBUS is the next day after a PET because the reporting's variable. We're lucky because we've got Greater Manchester Sectra, which is a regional PAC system. And everybody now is, is joining it. There's only one or two that aren't there now. So we can access the PET scans reliably. We can do. Um, uh, but the report isn't always there. So we're left looking at that. Uh, so it's a problem. We, we want to, as part of the PET work, work towards hot reporting. Um, it's hard, but that, that should be the goal. It should be everybody's goal. So the question is, how hard is it to, to get uh, normally competing trusts to come together as Greater Manchester um, and tackle the blockades? Oh, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, we've not, we've not, I wouldn't want to give the impression that we've achieved it. Uh, we have ongoing difficulties. Uh, just to give you an example, the single queue is hard. Some, um, I guess I have to be cautious what I say. Some teams have really set pathways and want to send their patients certain way places for their tests. It's hard to overcome that you can go anywhere for your test. What I think will happen is the data we're showing will show that it works. And then it, we need the system to take out 
clinical team's preference in that and say, this is how we're delivering it at a regional level. Um, we, so I don't have all the answers to it. We're still facing difficulties, but we just, we have to show data that it works. That's what drives things. Um, what proportion of EBUS at your center are performed before PET? Uh, and if waiting times mismatch capacity, yeah, you're right. We do EBUS before PET, but we leave that decision in the choice of the referrer. Uh, and that's how that system has to work. So they, they have to say, is it mandatory that this person has a pet before their e-bus? And if they say yes, we'll wait for it. Uh, and the system won't let them book it until, they, until, the, until that pet's done. But if they say, do you know what? No, they need a staging e-bus. I'm happy to, for you to crack on with it. And then we'll do that. Uh, and until we've aligned the two, it will just have to work like that. Um, uh, question about was there any concern about encouraging vaping yes <laughs> there always is i could talk for for hours on it um yes but you just have to overcome them with evidence base and it's massive i, I can't go through it all now but you just have to tackle it you have to have a great comms package and education package um uh so yeah it, it, it's um there's, there's just polarized views but i, I personally I am convinced they are one of the key components of a truly smoke-free generation. Uh, and I think that's just a fact. Um, and the uh, last question was, how have you managed workforce shortages across different departments and stakeholders? Again, with difficulty. Um, you have to maximize where your assets are. One of the things we've at my own center we've benefited from is having a really collaborative single unit of thoracic oncology medicine and thoracic oncology surgery we're one directorate we're, so we're not in a medicine directorate we're in a lung cancer and thoracic surgery directorate so that means you know lots of clinicians in both of those areas but we have a specialist nursing um specialist nurses workforce and navigators that can actually work and cross cover across the entire patch so that when we say right we need we're gonna have a lot more work from this single qe bus because it generates duplication and, and, and hard work well actually we can cross cover this from from these teams uh, other places aren't as fortunate as that but it means we've built in big capacity in certain areas of the system, but you have to maximize that capacity and single queue allows you to do that. And it has to, everyone has to get involved in that. Right. I think I'm going to um, just end there uh, because um, we started a little late, but I think we're, I do want to get over to Liz. So she's got enough time to have a really important talk and has time for questions as well. So Liz Toy is our next speaker, who's a, a clinical on, oncologist uh, in the Somerset NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, but actually, many of you will know Liz because of her work in uh, the National Clinical Expert Group, but particularly as the clinical lead for uh, the National Lung Cancer GERFT team. Um, and we are all, you know, as a, as, a, as a pathway board chair, we are waiting for the national report. It's going to be so powerful and impactful, and, it, and it's going to be a massive vehicle for us continuing to try and change and evolve um and that i think it's just such an important bit of work so liz is the ideal person to talk about benchmarking and data through all of that work um so welcome liz and thanks for talking well thanks very much for that introduction matt and um yes we're all looking forward to the introduction of the um, now with the launch of the national report 
Um, unfortunately, it's under embargo at the moment, so I'm not going to be specifically um, referencing it, although obviously I'll be sharing some insights. When I was first given the topic of benchmarking, I thought, well, we do this all the time in, in cancer, in, in medicine. Um, we often think of this as being, oh, sorry, I've forgotten the declarations of interest. Um, we often think of benchmarking as being a process where we're comparing our practice against an external standard. But I think the more we think about it, we should be thinking about it as a tool that we can use to facilitate change. We know that um, external facilitators, such as a GERFT group, may come in to help use benchmarking data to motivate a team to um, engage in improvement work and understand where their performance sits in comparison to others. It may be higher, or in some cases, it may be lower. And there are very few areas that we visited where everything has been good. And likewise, even in some other trusts which may have been struggling a little bit, there's nearly always some aspect of good practice which can be shared. Now, as clinicians, we can be a bit of a competitive bunch. Um, but I think the key thing that we think about with, um, with benchmarking is that it's a reflective process. And I think this particular quote um, really sums up where we should be thinking of benchmarking in terms of it's the practice of being humble enough to admit that someone else is better at something and being wise enough to learn how to match and even surpass them at it. So historically, benchmarking was developed in industry and largely it came about as a sort of competitive process against um, both analysis and cost and industrial processes. And it was particularly championed by organisations such as Rank Xerox. Um, but in the 90s, it became adapted to become much more of a continuous quality improvement approach, where they started to share best practice. And subsequently, there was a focus on comparative measures, which were of interest to the users, which in our case would be our patients and their families. And there were a number of tools that were published, such as this one by Picciarelli and Monnier, which still remains one of the most widely used um, tools in benchmarking. And they describe a stepwise approach, which, although it identifies the competitive gap, it really emphasizes that it is just one step. Equally important is at the top of that process, identifying the standards, correct, collecting accurate data, and then having identified the gaps, communicating well, developing as a team the action plan that's going to be carried out by all. And we need all stakeholders to be involved in that. And I think leading on from that, it needs that concrete action to be taken, but continually monitoring the process and the change that is being made. Now, again, this was still very much based in industry, but Ellis really took this forward in the healthcare sector. And in the early 2000s, and subsequently, she published on it um, in the nursing um, literature particularly. They brought the practice into the clinical situation, into everyday practice that, um, of small things in a clinical um, environment, what would happen on a ward, what would happen in an outpatient area. And what she really emphasised was the importance of contemporary and accurate data to inform that continuous improvement. And as a result of that, we know that there needs to be sustained um, effort to continually measure outcome. 
And we've seen that being embedded in NHS um, practice. We see it in all the nice quality standards as an example. So in practice, we are regularly comparing indicators that uh, we look at outcomes often. But actually, as Matt described in um, his very eloquent talk, we're often looking at what the structures are in place. Can we do something on a wider scale, such as he's described in Greater Manchester? Which activities are being done in which hospital? So is everywhere doing eBus? And is everywhere doing the same sort of eBus? One of the key things I think is important, though, is the learning that comes from inter-organisational visits. And when GERFT was set up, we were very much expecting to be visiting each MDT and having a conversation around a table with individual clinicians. Sadly, COVID has put pay to that. But it's that process of continually seeking out new approaches um, to make those improvements. And as Matt's described, in terms of his um, constant um, data collection, the monitoring and reporting of indicators and building on that. Now, obviously, in lung cancer, for some time, we have had international, national and local examples of benchmarking. And I think we, we must um, really give credit to the International Cancer Benchmarking Partnership. And we know um, some of our leaders in, in cancer, Jem Rambas and Mick Peak, have been very integral to that group. It's basically a group of both clinicians um, and academics, but importantly, also the policymakers. This is looking on a global scale. It's looking at how um, different jurisdictions, um, practices and policies impact on cancer survival. And the partnership's um, own objectives are to identify specific causes of performance differences between countries where the quality is good with strong cancer registries. They're looking at insights to generate survival outcomes, but also they're developing various tools to investigate or to simulate how a process change in one country based on the good practice from another may impact. And it's really good to hear that one of the things they're focusing on at the moment is early intervention in those patients with advanced stage disease, where we know if we're struggling maybe with our own process or getting molecular turnaround times, patients are progressing during that time. And there are a number of other European partners who have shown good um, improvements in their own pathways. Certainly the Danish data, um, where they were benchmarking internally, um, particularly with regard to surgical centres, by centralising some of that surgery and restructuring the way their um, cancer services worked. They've shortened pathway times. They've got more accurate pathology and they've had higher reception rates. Using another um, example from industry, the Norwegians looked at what was known as the Toyota Lean me method of trying to gain those small incremental um, gains in pathway times, and their overall pathway has been shortened quite dramatically. Moving closer to home, um, Noel O'Rourke and Robert Milroy from Glasgow have been involved in the Advance One study, which was published earlier this year in lung cancer. This was a, a European um, Respiratory Society funded pilot project, which really had three parts to it. Two cancer centres in Glasgow and Berlin drove this, and they had firstly a narrative literature research. And in that they found, actually sadly, there's relatively limited 
quality and quantity of published data of benchmarking in lung cancer. Their second phase was to adapt the stepwise approach that Pitarelli and Monnier um, showed, one I showed earlier, in order to develop tools to give a snapshot of their services. They looked at the infrastructure and the capacity at each site. And they looked not only at service provision, they looked at registry data, but importantly, they looked at the patient experience um, along that pathway and also staff satisfaction. And the output is really quite exciting in terms of the study design, which hopefully will be launched in the pan-European study in, in time to come. But I just wanted to look at what the individual MDT's um, learning was, and this is taken from their, their paper. The two centres spent time in each other's centres, observing, talking, um, and really developed a number of learning points, both from a, applicable at a local level, such as, for instance, um, one of the centres noticed or learned from their counterpart that working up patients as, as inpatients really sped up their process. They learnt the value of prehabilitation and regular MDTs um, twice a week rather than just once a week. But likewise, they discovered some national level or nationally applicable pa um, patterns that were emerging, such as having dedicated lung cancer respiratory physicians rather than pay people trying to cover maybe three or four different subspecialisations within their practice. But it wasn't all learning in one one direction. The second centre really learned a lot about um, utilising administrative staff, utilising a cancer tracker and navigator to make sure patients are kept on track, and really seeing the value of things like integrated IT systems. Um, Matt's described the, um, the widespread packs in Greater Manchester, but being able to share information allows a much more um, quick and streamlined pattern and once again, it needs to be backed up by that regular feedback to, to data management. As clinicians, we are all aware of that big data, which sadly shows that when benchmarked against our international um, counterparts, our outcomes have been less good. And yet we do, and over time, thanks to the work of numerous people, many of whom are probably on this call, we have a, a lot of evidence for um, the variation across the UK in outcomes. We're fortunate to have the great repository of the National Lung Cancer Audit, which and up until recently has shown good improvement stepwise through utilising that benchmarking against um, local centres and against national centres. But we also have intelligence from at CCG level, um, so even drilled down from individual providers at secondary care level. And we're really grateful to teams like the UK Lung Cancer Coalition and CRUK as organisations for highlighting the disparity in, in care. And it was because of a number of those um, reports were impacting at, at national level that um, NHS England approached GERFT, who had a track record in benchmarking, to look particularly at the lung cancer pathway. Now, obviously, our um, pathway is a little bit different because it wasn't simply GERF-sponsored. It was co-sponsored by NHS England. But utilising the stepping stones of GERF in terms of gathering data, um, local visits where we engage with clinical teams, have clinical conversations, um, with engagement of the, the managers and implementation teams 
to try to enact those local action plans and to share good practice particularly. Initially our scope was to look at the unwarranted variation at the beginning of the, the, the pathway and Matt has very eloquently described a number of the things that they were doing in Manchester which has really been um, an exemplar in, in many of our, our visits um, going through. We built in or built into the spec were the standards of care which he has also referred to in terms of benchmarking marking which steps should occur as well as at what time points. And it was very important that it was done alongside the commissioning guidance in terms of people understanding what was actually commissioned, which might sound obvious, but actually there were certain areas, um, for instance, looking at enhanced supportive care, that was, that was a very varied interpretation of. It was felt to be important that we didn't simply look at the diagnostic part of the pathway, but it was extended to look at some treatment parameters such as surgical rates and also the radical radiotherapy for early stage disease. As clinical leads, we really felt that this was um, a once in a lifetime opportunity really to explore some of the quality issues and therefore we brought into the questionnaire component, rather than it being in the data packs, um, some of those quality standards drawing on the information that comes from um, things like consensus guidance from the Royal College of Radiologists the service specification that Matt alluded to for eBus. And we use that information during the deep dives um, in terms of having that conversation and in terms of advising on some of the local action plans. And it will be within the narrative of the national report, but because a number of um, the questionnaires were, were filled in by maybe not a whole MDT, we felt there was sometimes some inconsistency and therefore we won't be publishing it as comparator data um, within an academic paper. In terms of our, our time points, we very much drew um, up on the um, National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway, which is obviously the commissioned um, pathway. I, rather than mapping out the whole pathway, which is always difficult, I've just put out this simplified version um, from the UKLCC publication. But, Again, that focus at, on time to x-ray, um, time to CT from initial x-ray, the time to triage, all those aspects are so important if we are going to get patients to treatment as soon as possible and certainly within 49 days. And I'm just going to use one real slide from the Diagnostic Convention. It was actually great that Matt highlighted what they've been doing with the RAPID programme in Manchester. This is just one slide which shows the variation um, taken trust by trust in those trusts that gave us data from their own cancer systems in the time from a patient having a chest x-ray to having the CT scan. The red line that you see running horizontally is the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway Standard of three days. And we can see what a challenge there is to us because hardly any trusts are actually achieving that. And in many cases, their median time was over three weeks in order to achieve that CT scan. Now what reasons did we come across? Well, many of you um, will think some of these reasons are quite obvious. We're all aware of workforce shortages. We're all aware of the relative lack of CT scanners in the UK compared to some of our European counterparts. But actually where benchmarking can come in and be really helpful is if we look at single points of failure in a service, we look at inequity of resource, um, many 
trusts hadn't been able to employ a navigator, which, as Matt's demonstrated in Manchester, is invaluable to running that pathway. But we were also seeing um, variation in approach to the use of IV contrast um, because of local rules regarding EGFR, whether they were having point of care testing, whether it was done on a physiological basis. But also, we were seeing things like ethical arguments about equity of access. Why should a lung cancer patient have priority over a prostate cancer patient? Was an argument we heard in more than one trust we visited. Now, as clinicians, we know the, the reasons for that. And as Matt said, we're not often talking about more scans, we're just talking about more timely scans um, and then being reported at that point. And ring fencing is absolutely key to achieving that on our pathway. We also witnessed um, a fair degree in, in some trusts of being just unwilling to change approach because we've done it this way, it works, but actually um, our, our trust is special, we can't do that. And that is one of the areas where benchmarking really does change people's approach to treatment when they, it can be seen that they can be confident because other areas can share best practice. Um, two examples of that would be in terms of the discussion around skill mix with reporting radio radiographers and extended nursing roles. And also perceptions of patient preference. We've seen very eloquently um, described in the lo local presentations at, and at BTOG and, and nationally um, examples of patients having virtual consultation and being sped through the pathway. Yet we still hear how our patients wouldn't like that. But actually when we can share the patient feedback on that experience, it's really valuable in improving um, patients' journeys. Another variable um, that we saw a lot of difference in was the proportion of patients having EBUS. Now, it's quite hard to define a standard, so we can't set a, a, a benchmark of 25% of people should have EBUS because with it, we know that the um, stage distribution varies around the country. But what having a discussion with a local team when we present the um, data, which they may not have seen against their comparators about how many patients are having EBUS, makes them query, are we actually using the bundles of care um, in the way in which they are designed to be interpreted to standardise the approach for a patient with a particular stage of cancer. And likewise, what about patients having more than one biopsy? Needless to say, we expect, we need patients to have more than one biopsy if we're going to be accurately staging them. So we wouldn't expect that um, level to, to be zero, but likewise we wouldn't be expecting it to be over 20% in a number of centres. We can't define what that correct standard is, but one of the things we encourage teams to do is to look at their decision making to check that they are utilising that resource which is precious of radiologist time, of um, physician time in terms of EBUS, but likewise patient time and patient risk. So they're not having a CT guided biopsy if they're going to need an EBUS with all the um, additional um, burden that that brings. So what would be the impact of us actually managing to um, bring up the rate of um, treatments to a set benchmark? So what, one of the things, this is just data taken from the um, 2017 audit, 
But we looked at that um, across the, the patch to say, well, actually, we know there's variation. So what would happen if we brought um, all trusts up to the average rate of radical treatments? Well, that would actually give an extra 5% of patients being able to have radical treatment. And if we bring trusts up to the top quartile, that would be 9%, over 500 patients being um, able to have radical treatment for early stage disease. And we see very similar things with small cell cancer. We see the rates of chemotherapy are very variable. We also saw the, the speed at which patients were getting um, chemotherapy was very variable. And if we apply that going up to the median amount of chemotherapy being given, there's a 5% increase. And if we get to that top quartile, 10% more patients are accessing active treatment. And those are, these are data which all trusts have in, in their own domain. They can um, look locally against their, their partners, but by examining the pathway, really look to see whether their decision-making is in keeping with others. There are a number of areas we didn't have access to um, look at within the GERF reviews. And these are some personal views, not necessarily what we've um, documented in the report, which as I say is obviously embargoed, but areas I feel would benefit from benchmarking would include, and it was interesting that Matt has already talked about um, benchmarking against the national specification of EBUS um, and how that has brought up um, quality improvement in Greater Manchester. We hear a lot about pathology turnaround times and particularly with the move to the genomic hubs that's thrown everything up in the air in a number of areas. So it's going to be important that we collect that data in a contemporaneous way and look at how that data is used in terms of access to the targeted therapies. And we know a number of areas are going down the route of regional MDTs to standardise the approach of offering targeted therapies to patients with certain mutations opening up access to clinical trials um, in areas where there's small, smaller numbers who potentially could benefit. But I just really wanted to finish particularly looking at stage three disease, the um, role of combined modality therapy. And we know from um, the Adizi publication back in 2019, what variation there is in stage three disease, with a third of patients having no active treatment at all and only 40% getting curative treatment, with only one in five patients getting multimodality therapy. We also, as an oncologist, recognize that concurrent chemoradiotherapy is very variably used around the UK. Now, that shouldn't really surprise us when we look at the use of radical radiotherapy in earlier stage disease. We can see great disparities in how patients are selected with some centers um, having very high rates and yet other areas um, really treating very few patients. Now some might argue, well is that just because the patients are all undergoing surgery and yet actually if you look at the correlation, often high surgical centres are often high treaters with radical radiotherapy. So what sort of barriers might we see? Well the argument is always stage 3 disease is a very heterogeneous disease and I certainly wouldn't disagree with that. However, we see more concrete areas such as lack of access to IMRT. Not every um, radiotherapy centre is able to routinely offer patients with lung cancer IMRT. Now that actually surprised me and it's one of the areas where 
hopefully the recommendations have really been a, a, in that local action plan have enabled change at that local centre. We do know that some centres will still use chart radiotherapy, but actually in a number of cases we are seeing more attitudinal change. There's concerns about the additional toxicity and about patients' comorbidity in that particular region of the country. Now that may well be, um, be accurate in some places, but actually we're hearing these same um, arguments for not giving it in a number of different areas around the country. So actually we need to look at how we can benchmark against um, not only just our own region such as the Cancer Alliance, but also nationally. And that may include um, looking at national virtual MDTs. It may involve looking at um, peer review of radiotherapy volumes. We hear there isn't enough physics time, there isn't enough consultant time. But actually if we have a robust way of um, providing that support, then I would hope that we will be able to increase what people feel comfortable to offer patients and increase the number of our patients accessing the right treatment. So really just to finish, the challenge ahead is still significant. There's been lots of improvement made and thanks very much to the data that's been produced by um, the National Lung Cancer Audit as well as those other organisations. It's imperative that that high quality data is co collected, analysed and particularly owned by the clinical team. But we must be sharing that data and using it to drive improvement, not just at trust level, but alliance level, nationally and internationally. And that evidence that we're having of continuous improvement must be used to secure um, the ongoing support for data management. But above all, with any benchmarking, we must keep the patient and family experience central to all our endeavours, um, because that's what we're all here for. And Matt, I think I'm going to finish there. Fantastic. Uh, thanks, Liv. That was a brilliant talk. I really enjoyed the look back at benchmarking and the history of it. And um, I took loads of photos of those slides. <laughs> um, there was a, a question that came through, um, I think, during both of our talks, uh, that I wonder if it came out in the, in the work that Gerth's done. It, saying, is there a national drive to increase PET capacity? Um, um, what, yeah. Certainly it's been a major focus of um, our GERF visits and a lot of discussion. Um, I think I have to be conscious that I'm, um, the report is embargoed at the moment. It still hasn't actually been signed off by NHS England. But I think it is fair to say that as part of the GERF process, there's been an ongoing discussion um, we've had regular meetings with NHS England and the, um, the PET contract, the KPIs have been a focus of some of those discussions because we know that um, the, particularly the weights in some areas have been, been very difficult. There's also been variation in terms of access to PET for clinical research as an example. So yeah. um, I think it would be fair to say we have um, raise questions for NHS England to um, discuss with the um, with specialist commissioning regarding um, the, the terms of the future national contract um, and um, the, uh, the bidding process that goes with that. 
so without saying something I'm not allowed to say at the moment, um, I think I think yes, it, it's been a feature because um, pet has been a concern in a number of centres that we have looked at, um, and we all value the what pet adds to our patient journey. And as you say, it's, it changes the whole pathway if you haven't had it before they've had an EBUS. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to move on to a few of the other questions. So. Um, with the move to ICSs, how will local teams hone into specific locality aspects where improvements are most needed? Uh, averaging data may improve headlines, but less helpful. I think that's where it's important that any data from within a local hospital has to be owned by that clinical team. So, and one of the um, repeated themes, I think it's fair to say, with some of our GERF visits, is looking at the validation of data and whether that is validated by the whole clinical team. So I think although um, data is being collected on a, a broader basis, it's absolutely key that the local clinicians understand their data and know what data is being uploaded because that is where they, as a clinician, you are the only person that knows whether you've treated someone with chemo radiotherapy. Um, as a, point where it's been um, exported, we don't always see that there's been cross-validation between the RTDS yeah. data set, the SAC data set. So yeah. I think, yes, it's been collected, but um, it's paramount that the local team understands their own data before it goes out of the trust for, for wider yeah. use. And if you understand the data, then you have ownership of it, and then you can utilize that in, in the wider ICS. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's um, there's two questions that are very linked, I think. So um, one from Sanjay is asking, if you were a new lung cancer lead, everything we've talked about this morning could be a fairly overwhelming picture of where on earth do you start? Um, so do you have any thoughts about where kind of where do you begin on that on that journey of benchmarking data? And linked to that is that that takes time. And it can be quite a rarity to actually have time in your job plan to do benchmarking data service improvement. Do we have any understanding of, um, of how much time people get, you know, lung cancer leads get in their job plans? Is it adequately resourced to give them the time to do it? Um, so again, without um, quoting directly from um, yeah. the, uh, the, the national report, um, but more of a reflection on um, the visits that we've done. We, we, we're still doing the visits. We haven't been to every trust yet. But I think it is fair to say that where people have dedicated SPA within their job plans to be lung cancer lead, then there has been more progress made in terms of um, making continuous quality improvements along along that pathway. Now that's not to say a number of trusts haven't been working very hard and I think what we have really seen is how much work is being done in people's own time to achieve that. But um, in a number of the action plans, for example, we have recommended dedicated SPA. A number of clinicians have dedicated PA time, but that's normally DCC. But yeah. SPA is absolutely key because it's only by having time to 
for instance, go to network meetings, engage with others, go and talk to the managers you talk to in your own talk about sitting the three CDs down um, in those three key areas. Unless you've got the headspace and the time to do that, then you're not going to be able to affect change. Um, I almost used a quote from Einstein about um, if we keep doing the same things, we're not going to yeah. see the same, <laughs> same improvement. And I think that's one of the difficulties when people are just trying so hard to keep their head above water. We just keep doing the same thing just harder and harder. And we're not going to be able to make that step change, which we need to. So, yeah, SPA needs um, definitely ring fencing. In terms of where do you start, I think that's maybe one of those areas where the GERF visit can be helpful because we try to look at the, the whole pathway um, from the point it come, the request comes in um, or the patient attends for a chest x-ray. And the action plans that we're giving back to individual trusts are exactly that. They are individualised and although there are often common themes, um, they all do differ. So I think for an individual trust, I would say firstly, um, use something like the GERF visit or go back to that data if you've not had it and you'll be able to identify um, some of the things that um, are obvious. I think most of the things we identify in, in GERF visits aren't new to the clinical teams. It's often just highlighting it and allowing reflection within a um, multidisciplinary environment where you've got not all the clinical members of NDTs but actually the relevant service managers who sometimes can see the bigger picture for the full time for the first time. So going back to those individual action plans, working with your GERFD implementation team to maybe name the top five that you're going to focus on to start with. But likewise, not being um, afraid to approach another trust, see how things are done, because there's so much good practice around the country. Um, we can learn so much from, from talking to our colleagues. Okay, fantastic. Um, so I think we will... Um just bring this morning's sessions to a close. Um, we're planning to uh, meet again at quarter past 11 um, for the next talk. Um, uh, so we'll look forward to welcoming you back then. Thank you very much. Okay, welcome back everybody. Um, so we've got the second session of this morning. Um, we're going to move on to uh, service development and demand management. So I'm going to induce, uh, introduce Professor Richard Booten. And I don't often get the chance to introduce him, which I think he's a bit nervous about. Um, <laughs> the, when we're putting agendas together um, for events like this, it's important that there's lots of people representing every part of the country. The, when we're talking about service delivery, um, Challenges are different in different parts of the country in different regions. So it's a good, it's a, it's important to get a sense of that. Um, so we're challenged if we've got more than one speaker from an area. But for this one, um, there was just there is nobody else who can give this talk uh, about service development because uh, I've never met anybody with the dogged determination uh, to change services for the better. Uh, and to never sit still and rest and to be constantly evolving and improving uh, and bettering services. Uh, and many of the things I talked about this morning 
uh, have been driven by Richard's work and Richard's vision for lung cancer uh, in our area in the last 10 years. Uh, so he is absolutely the person to give uh, a talk like this. Um, and he continues to challenge me daily on being better, evolving, making services better. Um, so he, he better give a good talk now because that's a, that's a good introduction. <laughs> so <laughs> over to you, Richard. That, that must have stuck in the throat a little. Um, so uh, very kind words, Matt, thank you very much. Um, thank you to BTOG for asking me to, again to come back and speak on something really that I've never spoke on before, um, service development and demand management. So my, my first slide as always, uh, uh, well actually that's not my slide, but it, 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 I have certainly no conflict of interest, but uh, I thought I was uh, I'll just so yes, so I'll summarize what we're supposed to be covering. So how to create a case to develop and improve a service and how we understand pressure points in what we do. And, and obviously the case for change, overcoming barriers, process mapping and, and writing business cases. Now that's, that's a lot in half an hour. Um, all to be, although I hope I'm going to cover the subject, at least from a, um, an experiential perspective. So my, my first disclosure really is that I don't have anything that's pertinent to the talk, other than I am not an expert in this area. But I think as Matt's already alluded to, since I was appointed a consultant in 2008, uh, so 13 years now, we have built a very different lung cancer service here in this tertiary thoracic center. Um, we, we now have a, a clinical directorate that's devoted to the lung cancer pathway, and that includes Matt and myself and various other respiratory physicians dedicated to lung cancer and pleural disease, the thoracic surgeons and the medical oncologists in a single team. Uh, and obviously you'll be well aware of all the things we've been doing in Manchester. You'll be fed up of hearing about a lot of it, but in relation to tobacco addiction, accelerating diagnostic pathways and introducing lung cancer screening, these are all the things that we've done over the 13 years. And in doing that, I think the reasons Matt talks about what he talks about there is that you know, we've been very successful at acquiring money and writing successful business cases, totaling around about 15 million pounds in the last five years. And we have a current case in development for about 60 million pounds worth of investment in a diagnostic and treatment center for lung cancer to support the screening program and to support what is essentially the failing 62 day pathway. Um, so, um, so I guess I, I, this is going to be more of an experiential conversation about what I think have been important points. And as whether you're a lead lung cancer clinician, whether you're a speciality lead in a tertiary center for respiratory medicine and the, and the cancer issues, or you happen to be fortunate enough to be in a more senior recognized management position like a clinical director. Um, these things I think are broadly relevant to everything, obviously different scales and who you interact with in those different levels is important. So, you know, your managers, your finance people, uh, the teams you consult, uh, the, the breadth of the, what you consult is different, but we're all a, we're all trying to change this this graphic, right? This is the the bedrock as cancer clinicians that we're faced with every day. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell you a little bit in a minute about our revelation about five years into my consultant job after we've done what I think a lot of people do to try and tweak their pathways to improve this standard. But one of the things we've learned, I think, is that nationally derived targets are just unhelpful. This is certainly out of date as a target. It's 10 years plus old. It's not evidence-based. In fact, it's harmful. 
Um, and waiting two weeks to see somebody if you've got a query of lung cancer is, is frankly torture. Waiting 31 days to treat somebody for surgery is just embedding delay and harm. And I think more than anything, for Cancer Research UK to put, we will beat cancer sooner under this graphic, I think it's really just one of the biggest misnomers. So look at what's out there. Look at what the targets are. Make your minds up as a team whether we actually agree with this stuff. Because fundamentally, your chief executive will feel that if you're meeting this target, that you require no more resource. So you have to understand that if you're meeting the 62-day path, that's fine. But one in five people is still harmed by that pathway. They still have stage migration in that pathway. And is it acceptable in a modern day lung cancer service where we know that delay, even to 62 days, is harmful? So you're going to have to make arguments as to why you need more resource if you're compliant with that target. So are these targets relevant? And I don't think they are. And we certainly don't aspire to meet any of them. We are much more stringent. Um, so the reason this all kicked off for me a few years back is as a cardiothoracic center, we had lots of people in lots of disciplines with lots of knowledge, um, whether it's physicians, radiologists, pathologists, surgeons. We have lots of resources. You know, we had bronchoscopy rooms. We've got access to CT biopsy, all the complex physiology. We've got, we've got everything you need, bar PET actually. Um, and obviously we have a workforce, whether that's people devoted to lung cancer or a senior clinical fellow workforce. We're just, compared to the average district general hospital, perhaps, not surprisingly, we have a lot more going on. But, and here's the cruncher, we were crap. Okay? We were no better than anybody else, despite that level of infrastructure. And I think when we saw that, and this was work that came from a, a Macmillan cancer improvement um, analysis of the pathway, um, I think I can safely say that universally, whether it was myself, Matt, the specialist nursing workforce, the Macmillan workforce, the radiologists, we were all just, crikey, this is just rubbish. We, you know, we've got to be better than this. We can't, this can't be allowed to continue. This is like rubber stamping that harming patients is acceptable. The patient experience here is just awful. And so we had a very open and honest exchange of views. We, you know, the culture has to be one of free speech. And, you know, we have to be careful when we're having that, that it is a constructive and non-critical non um, environment to individuals, but it is critical of what we're trying to deliver. Um, and so that's, and then it starts with a small team. And then as we try and work out what our solutions need to be, then clearly it moves on. But I think looking at that data and saying to yourselves, what is it that we're doing that's wrong? Because we've tried and tried and tried to evolve the pathway and it's just not worked. And I think we can say that for a lot of hospitals across the country, because the audit would still support the fact that there's still a lot of unacceptable practice, uh, despite 10, 12 years of the audit. So what did we do about it? Well, I think, as I've said, there was already a very clear and singular belief amongst all disciplines that patients deserved better and that evolution had really just failed. Okay. Um, so I think we were honest. We put 
the driving force here was patient experience. So why do you want to change pathways? That's the question. Why are we trying to do service development? What is, what is it? And back in the day, 2015, there was not really much evidence around about patient outcome and delay. So much of our motivation was just about offering a patient a much better patient experience. The desire to change was common, and that's a great starting point, because if some members of the team don't want to change anything, that's really difficult. But if we're all on the same page, then we can start presenting a team view, not only in um, a, you know, a medical directorate, but possibly even a radiology directorate, possibly even in a pathology directorate, and the management structure matters. And who do you engage with from a clinical leadership perspective? You know, for me as a lead lung cancer clinician, it was probably my clinical director for respiratory medicine. But now as a clinical director of a service, it's probably my head of division, possibly my medical director. And equally, the same is true of management leadership. You know, is it a directorate manager, a divisional manager, or the director of operations? And some of that is not necessarily about the project, but some of it's about the size of the ask. So if you're asking for 15 million pounds, well, I can guarantee you're going to be having conversations with the chief executive and the director of finance and the director of ops, rather than at a director or divisional level. So getting to know the right people is really important. In truth, although we felt revolution was necessary, none of us have the skill set to deliver system-wide change. We're clinicians. What do we know about doing that? Certainly, I'm, I'm old school. I, I, you know, I think there's a lot more focus on quality improvement in training nowadays, but we really didn't have the skill set to even know where to start to approach it. So you go to the professionals in your organization, and there are lots of teams now about change management or project management. Um, and so we enlisted a bit of that support. Um, but I think we, as I'm, I'm laboring the point, but I think doing nothing or tweaking was just simply felt to be unacceptable. Root and branch review is a phrase that's used a lot perhaps, but it felt like that was time because tweaking on its own was not working. Sorry. So here's um, a very blurry picture, I'm afraid, but I think it sums up the high-tech approach that we used for this service review. We have the head of the project management office next to me. Um, you'll see my um, trademark uh, sweater um, and sartorial elegance, um, and my directorate manager at the time in the stripy top. And this was probably 20, 25 people sat behind us trying to work out what the lung cancer pathway was from start to finish. Okay, so take the GP referral, what happens to it, where does it go, who's involved, every single step of that pathway, all the way through to the MDT and to the treating um, people. And you have to tailor that process to what you have in your hospital. Obviously, there's no point talking about surgical pathway if, you're, if you don't have surgeons in your, in your hospital, and there's no point having oncologists involved if, if, um, uh, if, if they're not in your control. So this, this was an exercise that was very team-based from the bookings clerk who takes the two-week wait referral from GP to the chest clinic clerk, to my medical, to our secretaries, to just everybody involved in mapping that pathway out. And once you've mapped it out, and I've been preparing this talk, I managed to find this, which I'd completely forgotten about. There are three slides coming next where we talked about issues, challenges, and solutions. So having done that sort of brainstorm, and we put all these post-it notes up on the wall, uh, I'm not sure if you can see all the detail under there, but um, you know, just trying to 
say what we thought the issues were in the pathway. And these aren't going to be a surprise to anybody. You know, timely access to diagnostics, lack of staff to deliver the pathway, lack of investment from the hospital, the appropriate bookings into clinic, the complex pathways we have, trying to get the CT reported before clinic. All you, know, you can see that when we scored as individuals, what do we think the most relevant, maybe take the top five you think are the most important. And then you've got eight people said, you know, timely access was the, the problem. You know, that gives you a very clear plan of attack to trying to change the pathway. And it is multi-stakeholder owned. Okay, it's not just a bunch of clinicians sitting at the top of the tree saying, we're going to do this to you. This is right up from the grassroots as a very big team. And actually, I think Matt will agree when we did this, you know, meeting the bookings clerk that we never ever met, never even knew the name of, um, was a you know was a wholesome experience. Um, how what 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 did we need to do to improve things? Again, that same team, one stop shop. You know, um, doing things that support the pathway. I, can't, can't remember. I think that was roles that support the pathway. So what? So this is where our concept of navigators came from, and that's become a you know a thing that's rolled out a lot now. Um, the infrastructure within new daily patient clinics. You know, nobody should wait a week to see somebody with a question with, a, with a, a question of whether this is lung cancer or not. But then there are challenges there, aren't there? And how do you then support a new daily clinic? Um, but both, if you understand the challenges and what you want to get to, you're describing the problem. Now you're describing the the ask of the system. Uh, is is uh, a very useful thing. And I think that whole team approach is, is very, very uh, important. And then there were just some comments about things, which again, I think will ring true with a lot. Um, that morale, you know, there's lots, anything that has a target. And anybody in A&E today will tell you that, you know, they're being battered by lack of performance. And if, you, if you've got that in your pathway, you know, that's not sustainable. It's not fair on those individuals to be battered because frankly, as the audit will tell you, the organizational audit will tell you, and GERFT, I think the big key message here is that we do not have enough people, infrastructure, estate to be able to do this better. Um, but hey, we're now eight years down the line from this um, and, and, and at least the audit is recognizing that now. Um, you know, your managers, start to say well we've got to do cost improvement programs so i know you've lost your navigator or your your your, your admin person in the chess clinic but we're not going to replace that for six months because you know we need to save a bit of money and that has a fundamental knock-on to the efficiency of the pathway so lots of these things hospitals are full of red tape full of unnecessary processes and procedures that just get in the way of moving people along and if you've heard matt or i talk about the rapid program you'll know that we probably cut out 20 steps from a two-week wait referral coming from a GP to arriving in the radiology department for a scan just by doing that pathway review. And it went straight from bookings team to the radiology department and the scan happened the next day. Physicians don't need to look at this stuff. We don't need to request it. You just have to work as a team to cut out the unnecessary rubbish. So in the end, the project management team drew this um, fairly complex diagram, perhaps, but it was an attempt to reflect what we felt we were aiming for. So again, pictures are great to try and convey the, the, um, 
the, the solution you want to try and get to. But of course, again, you can't, you can't do all of this. And we are still eight years down the line. We are still evolving this rapid program. Yes, we've been successful at the front end with, with you know, almost direct access to CT and hot reporting and seeing people the day after and telling them they don't have cancer, et cetera. But we've still got a massive elephant in the room when it comes to access to diagnostics and hot reporting and shortening that pathway down to 14 days, AKA the, uh, the optimal pathway. And, and in terms of how we get the surgical decisions made when people need to go off and see anesthetists and oncologists and have their you know, physiology reevaluated, that's still a work in progress. So these things are not something you can do for six months um, and then stop. This and I think it's been said to me this morning by my uh, director of finance that what's clear, one of the things the exec like is the passion and the determination to drive this along. It's clear to see, they tell me, in my, I, I tend to view it as being a complete pain in the butt um, and, and, and irritating people, um, but they see passion, which I think is obviously much nicer, much more positive. But this is a, an evolving piece. You've got to remain determined. You've got to retain your goals and your vision. And of course, they do evolve over those eight years as well. But we still have a very clear vision and strategy uh, for what we do. Um, I suppose as a team, um, and that team has evolved from, as I say, local chest clinic type teams to divisional and directorate structures now. But as a team, I think we've tried to create that culture of change that, you know, we are on a journey. We, we are driven by patient experience and patient outcome. And that is very hard to argue with. It, this is not about making um, Richard Booten a professor. It's not about making, you know, um, uh, getting me a gold excellence award. If that happens, it's nice. And it's recognition, I hope, for work that has transformed something of patient value. Um, and, and when we talk about things, we talk, we do have fairly big opinions, you know, so delivering ideas that change the world. You know, we're not, we're not trying to just, you know, make Winshaw a little better. You know, we're gonna, Matt, in fact, Matt is better than this than I am. Matt is very good at, at, at publicizing this and, and pushing this out of the institution. Um, and that has genuinely had an impact in our cancer alliance. The courage to disrupt what we do, to, to challenge those NHS England targets, to tell the hospital that they're not fit for purpose. Yeah, um, because it's about patients and it's about making sure that we offer the best that we can possibly offer. And that's true regardless of tertiary or secondary care. Um, so the impact on patients is central. That's our focus. And I think that is very key because when you're sitting in a management meeting and somebody's getting a bit nervous about the spend, um, it's very difficult to say we don't care about um, patients. Um, doing things for patient impact when it's the leading cause of death and premature death in our um, network, you know, things have to change. And this ends up being a priority for the institution to invest in. Commitment, teamwork, pride in what we do. I've been blown away, I think, when we've done all these grassroots events to see just how enthusiastic people you wouldn't think would be enthusiastic about their work in terms of changing things for patients. I, I'm, I remember having conversations with our divisional finance team 
Um, and their whole motivation for coming to work was to improve patients, patients' outcomes, saying in 10 years, I was a part of that. You tend to think of, you know, the, 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 perhaps the tradition is to try and think of them as bean counters who are trying to stop you from doing stuff. But that's singularly not been my view of certainly our finance team. So uh, again, getting out, meeting people, understanding the blocks from their perspective, how we work to a common goal is, um, and trying to retain that focus on the solution is really, really powerful. Um, and I think cross-discipline is always great. I cannot go into a radiology department, even with a professorial title, even with a clinical director's title, and say, you bunch of radiologists need to change what you do. What you do. But if I've got um, a, you know, a radiology champion who's bought into the culture of what we're trying to do, then that person certainly can but change the messaging that's fit for their discipline. And that's why we have been successful. We had, as you know, Anna Sharman, and now we've got Alberto Alonso, really trying to dr uh, drive things along uh, for, um, for, for achieving the aims of what we need to do. So in a, in a way, we broke this down into, uh, into manageable bite-sized things. What's the easy win? What's the quick win? And we very much felt that phase one of this, which was GP referral to uh, first outpatient clinic was the, was the win. Uh, and that's what we focused on. And in a way, that's what we've talked about when we talk about the rapid program. I'm not going to dwell on this because this is not about the rapid program. This is about the general principles of service development. So I think, again, if it's a big piece of work, you've got to try and break it down into manageable pieces because nobody wants to do a piece of work that becomes undeliverable because we all lose enthusiasm. We all get a bit despondent if it doesn't work. So bite-sized pieces, retain the focus. Uh, get one thing to be successful, build on that success by moving into the natural next element. Uh, and I think that's very much where we're at now with the, the diagnostic piece and the treatment piece. Uh, and I'll touch on, on that a little later as well. Um, it's, I think it is important when you're a novice to this to, to just, and, and in a position of leadership, you've got to go and do a little bit of reading, try and, you know, when you're trying to convince people, how are you trying to convince them? So, this is not just because I said so. What we're trying to do is move from a system that is not safe, is not effective, is certainly not patient-centered. You know, one of my colleagues, one of my senior colleagues, coined a phrase which was um, what patients basically endure is, um, uh, is, is waiting for capacity. But what we actually need to create is capacity that's waiting for patients. Now, that is a totally foreign concept to the NHS. You know, the NHS thrives on a waiting list, 100% slot utilization. And if that's the case, then I cannot get something. If I want to do a bronchoscopy today, my slots are all filled. If I want to do something tomorrow, there's a waiting list in CT for the next three weeks. So we've got to change the, what we do in cancer that allows us to do things today and tomorrow not next week or the week after. And that is a fundamental challenge to the management principles that the director of ops wants to follow. 100% slot utilization to them is efficiency. To me, it's inefficiency in delivering a cancer pathway. Um, it needs to be timely, it needs to be efficient, and we need no variation based on patient characteristics, which, you know, so these are good principles. You can reference a document, the Health Foundation is clearly uh, an excellent um, institution for quality improvement work uh, and we um, uh, had some uh, grant money as part of a rapid program from the health foundation and that was very useful too 
Um, and I think I'm touching on that in a second. Um, again, lots of documents about changing and delivering services in NHS back in the day. Um, and these are all good phrases. If you've got a document that's out there that's current and modern today, when you're talking to managers, um, referencing that it is consistent with the direction of travel of the NHS. So I suppose relevant to the NHS long-term plan, relevant to some Mike Richards review on screening, relevant, you know, you can get the, the, the feel uh, of, of, so they get the security that knowing investing in, in something is going to achieve some of the current things the health service is expecting from us. Um, I'm not, I'm, I won't dwell on this too much other than to pull out, I think, um, making conclusions that make you know, help with your argument. So at the moment, patients wait for hospitals to get their act together, and we need to change that. We need to be ready to, to do things today and tomorrow. Delay, we have to have a systematic approach to it, uh, particularly in lung cancer management. Uh, and we have to have a very clear direction of what we want to do. Um, it's always nice to have snappy things, so revolution, not evolution. I think that, that, that people can get behind the messaging, the size of the ass there. This is not a small piece. This is a big piece of work. And as I say, professional help is good. Um, external grants are very useful. And this was, I mean, this was only about £75,000 that we have from uh, the Health Foundation. But I think what it brought to the initial piece of work we started uh, was some very professional um, uh, quality improvement skill set. You get allocated um, a guy with those skills to meet with you weekly. You have to give progress reports. You have to uh, identify blockers, and then they will pick up with the organisation what you're doing about those blockers. Now, we had a medical director was our executive lead. Um, he was responsible for making sure we delivered the, on this grant. Um, Data collection is, is pivotal. Uh, again, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but don't miss the opportunity to measure what any pilot change does because it's really important for uh, implementation and sustainability. Um, the grant allowed a framework for evaluation. Uh, it does provide some funding, but mainly the, the value is in the skill set they bring along. But it does also, because you have to write a, a, a grant um, summary, and you've got timelines, it gives everybody a very clear focus. And um, as I say, having somebody like the medical director responsible for meeting those timelines certainly gets the visibility in the executive team and uh, un unlocks any challenges. There's lots of stuff in here about overcoming barriers, and I've talked about clinical champions in each team or area, um, educating people about what you're trying to do, you know, this patient-driven, Yes, it's more difficult for you, but this is why we're here in the health service. We, we did a lot of stuff on a wing and a prayer, probably would, uh, wouldn't recommend doing it without finance and um, some support, but sometimes you just have to get on and make the change, regardless of your job plan, regardless. And, and I think if the team can agree that, that's fine. Um, but we then have to think about the sustainability angle once you've got some evidence. Um, we are very much about codependency in it as a team, and there's no point in arguing for hot reporting from radiology if it's going to take a physician team three days to look at that report. Don't ask for what you won't do yourself. In fact, you've got to lead by example, haven't you? Um, trust structure can sometimes be a barrier. Uh, I think I've got a slide that talks to that, uh, so I'll, I'll skip that for now. But I am an absolute fanatic about command and control. 
I'll happily be responsible and accountable, but you, but I have to be exactly that. I'll lead a service, I will be responsible for it, but I need to have command and control. I'm not accepting anything if I don't have that because people need to respond. We have standard operating procedures, we have standards, we will implement them and we will measure and challenge and, 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 and respond if it's not, but there's no point if you don't have command and control. Um, the narrative when you're trying to do this stuff is important. We can talk about wait times. We can talk about what is a major risk in your organization and action plans. But, you know, when we're looking at screening, for example, biggest cause of premature death, bigger driver of health inequality in a, in a, in a population. These are the sorts of narratives you will put into any sort of business case or, or ask of money to try and get that context right. Um, uh, what would I ask? Uh, so I think I'll, in the interest of time, I'll probably just skip the rest of that. But I think pump priming definitely has a role. But what you shouldn't forget with pump priming and, and getting a bit of resource to change things is that you have to then have a plan for how you're going to keep that person in post. And, and that you can overlook and that can then destabilize a very successful project. Um, we, um, I don't know why that one's not sure there it is. So we, you know, you've got to use everything at your disposal. You can't wait for the, the, the bigger and best thing tomorrow. So, you know, simple, cheap, Outlook calendar helps us to, to run the service better, okay? Um, but equally, standards around what you're trying to do means that everybody in your team knows exactly what's required. And now, now that we have these standards, and you'll be familiar with these diagnostic standards of care, this is easy for the nursing staff to challenge the medical staff. Why are we not asking for a CT brain in, in stage two and uh, three disease? Why have we not done a PET scan here? Why are we not doing a, a, a CT biopsy? Why have we forgotten to ask for the echocardiogram? These bundles of tests and the check and challenge from all members of the team by applying that standard uh, really does help to move the pathway forward. Um, and then of course you have to measure what you do. And this is the beauty of data and measuring what you do. The simple things we did for very little money transformed our practice. Uh, and that's on the left. And then we have patient feedback to say this was brilliant because a lot of the rhetoric at the time was this will be too fast for patients, they won't like it. So a lot, again, I've learned that a lot of expert wisdom for which there is no evidence is often fundamentally flawed. Get your patient data because it is absolute. And we're seeing this as well now with patients don't like to travel fundamentally disagree with it okay it, the patients will travel but they have to it's for the right reason and it gets in the way of planning effective care um, this is probably more relevant to tertiary centers and, and divisionals you know how we set up how a hospital manages its its um you know, divisions in a hospital. You know, we've we've here traditionally for a long time had a division of medicine, division of surgery, and support services separately. And they all have divisional medical directors, managers, finance managers, and then directorate uh, clinicians, managers, and, and nursing staff. And to make a change in a lung cancer pathway, you have to influence all of those people. And of course, they all have differing agendas every day of the week, every month of the year. So that's really difficult to negotiate and. We've been very lucky, I think, in that with the work we've been doing, the executive have realized that actually that doesn't work. And we're having a single directorate for lung cancer and thoracic surgery where we're bringing together the key disciplines and we've got a single point of command and control. Uh, and this is really helpful for driving our change forward. 
Um, so what do you do after you've done that first bit? Well, you know, you've got to keep going. You've got to build on that pilot data. You've got to look for broader implementation. And that's where the business case comes in. But that pilot data does allow you to develop a much more robust business case. And that's important because everybody will talk about risk and what's the risk of investing that amount of money. Uh, and is it going to be, is it going to deliver what you say it's going to deliver? Well, you can say, well, if I do it in the way that we did it, you can see that we're going to transform, uh, you know, uh, MDT uh, time and we're going to improve patient uh, satisfaction. Um, so in the data side, I want to labor this a little bit because I think it's, whilst spreadsheets and data are not everybody's cup of tea, in the rapid pilot, we had the foresight, I think, to categorize our referrals by whether they came from GP, whether they came from hospital, or whether they came from our screening program. And we also had the foresight, because we were developing these bundles of care standards, to, to record what that baseline CT scan looked like. And that data is just not out there. So if you were trying to plan, how, how many diagnostics do I know for, for, on the basis of how many stage one lung cancers did I diagnosed last year, that is not the right denominator because there are lots of people who look like they've got stage one disease on a baseline CT that end up having stage two, three, or four disease when you do your evaluations. So the bundles of care and the baselines are really important um, thing from a business uh, planning perspective. And those bundles were by, by the referral route, by screening or two-week wait, were again very helpful when it came to, comes to planning out um, changes to the diagnostic pathway. And similarly in screening, you know, what's the proportion of people that we that are 55 to 74? What's the proportion of people we know to be ever smokers? What's the conversion rate to CT using PLCO? And now, of course, PLCO and LLP. You know, these are the very big numbers you need to understand to understand the impact of establishing screening in any cancer alliance. So data, 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 and, and um, understanding it is absolutely massive to credible business cases. Now in our screening business case, this is what it ends up looking like. This is the cancer, this is the screening pathway from invitation to lung health check to, to uh, CT and the conversion rate to cancers, well, two week weight referrals, to cancers diagnosed, to what stage of cancer and what therapy somebody had. But now we can do that for, for one CCG. I can also do it now uh, over two years. I can now run that over 16 years. And I can see over a period of time what that impact has to this cancer center by introducing that, not only over a longer period of time for one CCG, but I can actually model this for all 10 CCGs and see how that feeds into the thoracic surgical and the diagnostic environment. So the business cases clearly are required for major investments. Um, and I've said modeling is important. We have to have an understanding of your activity, what incomes associated with that, and how the working model is gonna change the workforce requirement. The, the estate may have to change as well. Of course, that's very expensive. And now we're approaching you know, the implementation of screening, the infrastructure required for that is going to be very different to what we do currently in, in standard lung cancer management. And the business case has to address a whole raft of risks, uh, financial, workforce, training, education, a whole raft of things in order that you can be successful. But if you write the right case, you can get a sustainable and safe quality assured service. Um, 
And because of that data, and because of the way I say you can write that, we can now, I can now produce a graphic like this, which basically said that over 15 years, the rates of stage one and two disease will go up, the rates of three and four disease will go down, and the number of life years saved per year is the gray bar underneath. Okay, so you can do all of that work. And that is evidence of the impact of introducing this at scale across a cancer alliance. And this is a very hard debate to, to counteract. Nobody, in fact, everybody I show this to now, we're quite advanced with the Cancer Alliance and the, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the partnership in, in Greater Manchester. As far as the organization is concerned, this is a no-brainer. It addresses health inequality. It is going to change outcomes for the leading cause of premature death in Greater Manchester. So that's where we're getting to with this level of data. So um, I guess my personal reflections are that, <laughs> yeah, dogged determination is important. Patience, it's a slow process. But, you know, if this is my legacy in 10 years' time, I guess I'll retire a very happy man. We do things that are for patients first and foremost. Hospitals second. And sometimes it's hard for hospitals to follow that patient first agenda. And it's often very hard for individuals to follow that because it means we have to do more things that we haven't previously done. Get rid of unjustifiable delay. Do things today and tomorrow, not next week and the week after. And as I've said, develop the capacity to do that today. Tenacity, passion, drive, whatever you want to call it, they're key features, I think. And if there's many people, I can't, I've never... Yeah, this is not me doing this alone. You know, Matt is absolutely key. The radiologist, Anna Sharma, has been absolutely key. You know, my, my nursing team, absolutely key. The management team, absolutely key. They've all got that tenacity and passion and drive. And I think it makes a very efficient team and uh, leadership team. Um, engage widely, get to know everybody, pull in favours, promise things um, to get what you want, um, and definitely use that champion's phrase. And educate people as to why we want to make the change. If there's a, a naysayer, there's always late adopters. But ultimately, they just don't understand the bigger picture usually. Um, I've talked about data. Innovation, I think it's, it's good. Keeps me interested. Um, lots of new ways of working. Uh, we have team job plans now. It's much easier to do a day-by-day, -day, cover the various things we have to do every day. Um, and we work very much on a, right, who's around today? Who can do what? Um, just get the job done. Standards are key, SOPs for implementation. Everybody signs a contract saying they'll follow SOPs of the organization. Now, actually, you're contractually obliged once you've uh, approved those SOPs to follow, the, follow them um, and, and make sure we have KPIs that you know, we're measuring what we've done, that we're meeting them. If we're not, we're in an action plan. Um, we need a risk register. We need to highlight stuff so that the organization responds in the most appropriate way. So that, that's, I think, I guess my personal reflection. It's, it's I hope I've addressed the, the, the ask um, and I'll, uh, I'll stop there and ask Matt to um, criticize me constructively. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. Um, that brilliant look back on over a decade of work, worth of work. Um, and there's some absolute gold dust in there. Um, yeah. The, so there's a good few questions coming in. So um, this is a good question. If you were a brand new lung cancer lead, what are the first three things you should do to address service improvement? 
Um, well, I think if you're brand new to that position, I think you've just got to you've got to bed in. You know, you've got to. You know, nobody likes a smart aleck that comes along and wants to change everything and and hasn't been around for a while. So, so I think you've got to you've got to bed in. You've got to work with the team. Um, you've got to understand who the, the the key players are at the moment and and the challenges in that system. And I and I think in many ways that's what we did, wasn't it? You know, I was I was fairly new as the lead clinician five years into consultant job, uh, and and we had that view, but it, it wasn't it wasn't about that lead clinician. Um, just saying to everybody, right, guys, this is this is rubbish. Now we need to change. This was about what do we think of that data? What, what where where are we going from here? You know, we can't keep doing this and expecting the same, you know, different results. Um, so I think it's it's build some relationships. It's understand your data. It's um, pull together the right team that's going to be able to 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 reflect the thought process to the whatever level of management you need to go through whether it's as i said before you know the team within a directorate or the division or the, or the hospital board um i think that's the basic starting point um and, and then pull, as i say i think one of the key things for me when you've not done the management stuff before and i'm certainly no expert in management either but pulling together as much evidence as you can at the time for what the national agenda is um, what the gap analysis is, what what documents are out there for change that supports the process and that, that whole stuff about how you change a service. And again, where you're deficient in safety, quality, effectiveness, you know, because it's very hard. If you write that down in a paper, two pages, and give it to your director of ops or your managing, uh, your, your medical director, very hard for them to turn around and say, you're talking rubbish, guys. You've got to make it difficult for them. They'll challenge you back, clearly, but you, you have to know your stuff and you have to represent it in a way that managers understand. I guess that's that's another key point. Isn't it? And I think it speaks to, there was a question during Liz's talk um, uh, that we didn't uh, have time to get to. It was about how do you bring in board level NHS leads to take note of benchmarking data and invest in services? And I guess what you've just said speaks to that in volumes, but anything you want to add particular about how, how do you get the attention of a chief executive uh, or of a, of a director of operations that can empower the vision you're setting out? Well, I think um, the way it's happened here has been that we have done some really good work um, within, within the directorate and division. At that level, and of course, that doesn't usually come across the, the the board's viewpoint. But when you've done the rapid program, when you've done the the MSIP screening pilot, and and that type of work is then feeding into how we then support systematic change in what we do, you've then got evidence. You can you can scale it up and say that if we did it in a different way, this is what it looks like. You know, it's obviously helped, isn't it? Obviously, we, 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 we submitted a lot of this work to things like the HSJ Awards and the BMA Awards to Patient Experience Awards, and we've won a lot of those. So again, people might regard that as being a bit of a jolly, but actually, it's a massive peer review process. Um, 
and it's other people saying that this is really incredible work and I think getting a HSJ award is no big, you know, most chief executives understand that. And I think we were, I think that's how it happens. You've got good data, you've got transformative data, you're getting peer review. Um, you know, GERFT has been good for us this year, hasn't it? You know, in terms of referencing 10 or whatever many things that we do, that's, that's peer review. And they have, most chief executives don't generally listen to internal, uh, we're great, we're brilliant but they do listen to external, oh, he's great, he's brilliant, or that team is brilliant. And it gives them the reassurance that investing in them is, um, is the right thing to do. So, yeah. So I think there's another interesting question just about the impact of COVID. And it's been awful for lung cancer outcomes. Set us back 10 years. But if there was anything positive about it, that it's shown many people that the bureaucratic hurdles can just be overcome and broken down at a time like that. But how, so the question was, how can some of the bureaucratic hurdles that came down for COVID be captured within pathways and evidence that's unnecessary to managers uh, to facilitate change? I think there are two things to that, isn't it? I think it feels to me like a lot of what happened during COVID um was was just shutting down some services um not really not really saying this is not the right thing to do you know we we i think 70 percent of our service carried on and it carried on face to face because we we took a view didn't we that patients need to come and see us if we need to if we need to do a bronc then we'll put our ppe on and get it done i don't care if they're negative or positive we just get it done uh same for thoracic surgery we kept a service going because it's the right thing to do for patients um I think, you know, data um, demonstrating that by losing this didn't detract from the quality. But then, if you're if you're saying we can get rid of that bit, but we can reinvest it in a different way, you know, we've talked a lot over the years about, you know, we have a cancer um, uh, services team that document how crap the pathway is. That's their entire job to watch how crap the pathway is and document it. Why, why aren't we using these people to help facilitate a better pathway? You know, there's no point in documenting a crack pathway. You know, you want to use those, but these are large numbers of people in an organization who actually, if we said, right, you need to help in the administration of speeding up the process of getting appointments and people, you know, that would be a far better use of that team. And then the targets go away anyway, you meet them by default. Um, so I'm not sure if I've answered your question actually, but um, we, we I, I, yeah, I don't know because I, mean, I don't think we necessarily have that challenge. We, we, we didn't let anybody, maybe that's the answer. We didn't let anybody take our service down or change it. We said, no way, Jose, you know, we are carrying on. That's the end of it. Okay. So I think uh, we're just a couple of minutes over time. So it's probably the, the right place to uh, call that to a close and let everyone get off for lunch. Um, and we are meeting back at, uh, 12.45 um, and my co-chair uh, Sanjay will, uh, will take you through the afternoon session. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us this morning and we'll see you back after lunch. Thanks everybody.
Welcome everybody to this afternoon session of the BTOG Mastercast Leading Your Lung Cancer Pathway. And uh, we had a really interesting session uh, today. You can um, refer to that on catch up if you, if you missed it this morning. Uh, but tonight, uh, this afternoon session is uh, really fabulous too. And we're going to start off with something, a topic area that I think is really important. And that's um, leadership. Uh, this whole session today is about leading your lung cancer pathway. And um, our first speaker is somebody who is well accustomed to that. He is uh, Dr. Nicholas Farnas, who is the medical director at the Royal Marsden um, and is a specialist with um, in clinical oncology and uh, has played a leading role in the UK with respect to SBRT services. So, Nicholas, over to you. Uh, thanks, thanks, Sanjay, and thanks to the um, faculty for asking me to do this. So, let's see if this internet clicker works. So, the um, official conflict of interest declaration, and there's uh, my disclosures on this. And uh, you know, I think it's it's clear we're always continuing to learn, and I definitely am still trying to figure this all out myself. So. When I was asked to give this talk, I realized it's probably the, what well, it is the first time I've ever been asked to talk about leadership. And I couldn't do what I normally do when I'm giving a talk about prostate cancer or about radiotherapy and dip into a very large bank of slides and rehash a, many, a, many talks I've given before. So I thought, well, where do I start? So I went to Uncle Google and I thought there must be lots of good information about leadership and you know, tutorials that I could uh, read and papers that I could look at just to give you an idea of how I would address a talk on leadership. And there are lots of different things on the internet about different styles of leadership, things like authoritative, democratic, coercive, and there are multiple other, other styles of leadership that are described. And when I read these, I found, well, I couldn't sort of really uh, put myself or really fit leadership into any one of these boxes. And I thought, well, actually, I don't think I fit into any of these particular styles. I, there's bits that I can get from all the different styles, but I didn't feel that I could really describe leadership in any one particular box. So I resorted to talking about my own experience, which um, I hope will be uh, beneficial to you. Um, so I'm going to divide it into two parts. One is leadership in a management sense, particularly in reference to my, my role as medical director, and then and then in a different context into research leadership. So just a little bit about me. So it puts it in context of um, who I am. So I, you can probably tell from my accent, I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in South Africa. I moved to the UK in 1997. I intended to stay for one year, do some locums and some travel, and uh, I, I have never left. Um, married, four children, growing up English, so yeah, all quite not what, what I really expected. Um, I trained as an SHO in Cheltenham, um, and then I did my special specialist registrar training at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in the Royal Marsden, and got my fellowship in um, on clinical oncology in 2004. I did a research fellowship in, um, at the Marsden in between 2004 and 2006, and then was appointed as medical director, um, uh, sorry, consultant in 2008, and uh, then became medical director in 2016, and actually hadn't done any 
previous leadership roles in the hospital prior to that, so it was quite a big step. I've been research active my entire career, and it's part of my career, my job that I really love. And I was really proud that this year I was awarded um, an, an academic personal chair at the ICR and became a professor in, in, in June this year. So let's start with the management side. So a few things that I've learned along the way. Um, the first one is be brave. And uh, why do I say this? Because sometimes the decisions that you have to make um, are difficult. And um, it can be quite, quite scary to make these decisions. And one of the things that I found most difficult when I started was people brought, brought decisions to me because they were difficult. No one else had yet been able to make them. So in whatever leadership position you are in, you will find that you are asked to make the final decisions. And the thing I found really difficult to get used to is when I made a decision, that's what happened. Um, that's where the action then followed on. There was often no further discussion. It's that's what the medical director said, and that's what happens. And that actually took quite a lot of getting used to, and it was quite scary that you had to take responsibility for those actions. But you do have to be decisive, and um, that is one of the key things of leadership. Um, indecision means that you do not make progress, and you cannot instrument change. So you do have to be decisive, and you have to accept the fact that sometimes you'll make mistakes, um, and everyone will. So not all the decisions you make will be right, but you're in the position because you are experienced and you have a good judgment of the and knowledge of the area, so you do have to be decisive. The next one is being fair, and this is probably one of the most important things, I think, in, in any leadership role. When you're dealing with uh, other colleagues or people, you have to treat people fairly and you will have to deal with people who you like, people who you like less, um, but you have to treat them all exactly the same way. And I think people can accept difficult decisions. They can accept when they've made mistakes and you've had to act on it as long as you do it in a fair and transparent manner. And leadership, unfortunately, is not a popularity contest. So you will make decisions. You will, if you're instituting change, there's always going to be people who don't like what you've done. And there'll always be, there'll always be um, people who think wrong and people who will criticize what you've done. So you have to be able to accept that it is not a popularity contest. And therefore, it can be lonely. Um, and I think things that you need to do to address that is you need to have senior colleagues around you who you trust you aren't actually alone most of these decisions are not going to be yours alone you'll be making them making them with other team members even if you have to make the final one but you you're not you're not alone and it's also useful to have some phone of friends particularly outside your organization people who you can lean on for advice um, colleagues you know senior colleagues from other organizations or even other areas of life that you feel that you can just use as a sounding board and the other thing is, if you believe it's right, it, it probably is. You know, you've been in there, have been in doing whatever you do for a long time. You will have good judgment, good knowledge. And if you think it's right, then trust yourself because it probably is and you need to stick with it. So what about being faced with difficult problems? There are very few 
uh, serious decisions that have to be made very quickly. It's not like a recess situation where you obviously have to make instantaneous decisions, but most decisions you can take time. And you need to slow down because it's dangerous to shoot from the hip and to make decisions too quickly. You need to get all the information about whatever the problem is that you're facing and you need to triangulate it. You know, I can say 100% certainty for every serious incident I've dealt with since I've been in this role. From what the first person told me to actually what happened are two often entirely different stories. So you need to triangulate do not take what the first person tells you at face value because almost certainly there'll be significantly more to the story than it was initially evident. And if you make a decision too hastily, you may go down a path that you don't want to go down. So take your time, get all the information before you decide what action is needed. And this is really particularly about senior leadership. If you do end up in a, in a senior leadership role, the roles come with um, power and privilege and they are exciting and they are, you know, they're really great jobs. But with that becomes huge responsibility and pressure. So you've got to, if you want to take on senior leadership roles, you've got to be able to deal with that. And how do you? Well, I think getting a coach. So before I had this job, I, I didn't even really know anything about coaching. But early on, I got a coach, um, completely external to the organization. It was really helpful because coaching tells you a lot about who you are and how you respond to situations. Um, and I learned a lot about myself and, and my own leadership style by having a coach. And I think it was really, uh, it was really very beneficial. And I would strongly recommend it if you if you do get into a senior leadership position. The other thing is build a strong team around you. I, I like to think that uh, the, my team around will be brighter and more talented than I am. And my job is just to keep them going in the right direction. And I think surrounding yourself with really good people is key. Um, and you know it makes the job a lot more fun and stimulating. And it means that you, you are not working in isolation. So, so build a team is, is really key. And the other thing is you have to accept that you take responsibility for the problems. You take responsibility for the things that go wrong. But when things go well, it's important to share that and to give credit to the team because it won't be your, you alone. And rather give the, the credit to your team and take the trouble on your own shoulders. And leadership is not a one-size-fits-all, and there's no point in trying to lead like other people do. I mean, you can learn from others, um, but you've definitely got to find your own style. And for those of you who don't recognize uh, the man in the photograph, this is Sia Khaleesi, who's the current captain of the South African rugby team, who led, probably slightly unexpectedly, the South African team to win the World Cup. Um, and he's a truly inspirational leader, and I would love to say I could lead like Sia Khaleesi but I have none of his talent. Um, but there's still things I could learn from him, and that is how hard he works on the field. He would never ask any of his team to do things he wouldn't do, and also just the pure passion he has for the role. So although I could never do what he does, it doesn't mean I can't learn some of the things from the way he leads. Sorry, I'm going to use a clicker, which just keeps going off. Um, Phil, my slide's not advancing. Can you give me the next slide? 
So if you, um, if you are in a leadership role um, and you've been asked to do it, there's a reason why you've been asked to do it. It's because people believe that you can. And so you have to believe in yourself. Um, sometimes uh, imposter syndrome, which is you know feeling like, why am I here? Why am I doing this job? Is very common. I've certainly suffered from it myself. Um, but there is a reason why you're in the role because people believe that you can do the job but sometimes it's the only person who doesn't believe that is you. So really trust the fact that you've got there for a reason. Believe in yourself. So let's talk a little bit about research. So change tack a bit. So for me, some of the key things to leading successful research are the following. The first one is something you may not all be able always be able to control, but it's research. It's working in a research active institution. This doesn't have to be a you know, an ivory tower or a big academic hospital, but your your center needs to support research because it's definitely not something you can do in isolation. Um, get mentors who will support you, but also let you fly solo. This is key. Again, you may not always be able to control, to, but look around. It doesn't have to be someone who you trained with. There are senior researchers out there who love to help and support colleagues build their careers. And this was my mentor, Professor David Dernley, who was my academic supervisor when I did my MD, and then gave me huge support as I was building my own research portfolio um, through the early part of my career. And although he's now retired, he was definitely one of the first person people I told when I was recently awarded a chair. Good ideas. Um, well, this seems so obvious, but you need to solve problems that need solving. Um, quite often I see research fail because it's a so what. So you get to the end of the project and it hasn't actually moved anything forward. And it's because the question really wasn't that important to start off with. So really focus at the start on what are the problems we need to solve. Keep trial design simple. Again, I think some of the studies that fail because people have overcomplicated and tried to answer too many questions simultaneously. So keep the design simple. Build networks and engage colleagues early. So although research is competitive, it's also much more fun to collaborate. And I find, you know, these days people are much better at collaborating. Um, and that's not just within your own institution, but widely, nationally and internationally. And I think um, the pandemic as well has made communicating in the virtual world the norm for us, a bit like we're doing today, and it has made collaborating more widely, more easily. So Twitter is, uh, I'm not really particularly big on social media, but I do use Twitter in my, for research, and it's a great way of keeping up to date with what's happening and also communicating with research colleagues. So from your community, the legendary Sanjay Popper at the top is very active on Twitter, um, and uh, people like Fiona MacDonald and Shankar Siva also active in the lung community on Twitter. And sometimes there's comments like about how good we are in the UK. So this was from Shankar, just pointing out that the UK has a knack of completing studies that no one else can do. And I think that's true. We are good at research in the UK. We are good at running studies. Um, and it's a, it's a great place to do research. And the final thing is work hard. Um, research isn't easy, um, but you do have to work very hard at it. I think of it a bit like this. So success in research is 
big impressive iceberg on the top, but actually what's happening underneath is even bigger. It's hard work, persistence, the late nights, rejection, sacrifice, discipline, criticism, doubts, failure, risks, all of these things are happening under the surface of the successful studies that are, or successful out research outcomes on the top. For me though, research is fun. It's definitely the best part of my job. It's the part I enjoy most. It's um, definitely the most satisfying so if you're interested in research, I'd strongly you know, encourage you to continue with it. So enjoy leadership. Um, try and inspire others. This is truly, for me, the most inspirational leader of our time. I had the great privilege to meet him on one occasion, and it's truly the utterly starstruck. Um, stop there. Happy to take questions. That's fabulous. Uh, thank you very much, Nicholas. And uh, I, I've got a few questions um, whilst hopefully other people um, uh, send them in. So my first question is time management. So for, you were talking there about, you know, your, your kind of clinical management role and, and medical leadership and also your research. So a lot of people, I would imagine, as they lead their lung cancer pathways will also have, you know, a full uh, job plan and think, how can I fit this all in? How do you fit it all in? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so, I mean, I, I still work clinically, um, but I had to downsize my clinical practice uh, when I became medical director. So I, I had to drop a, a certain number of clinical sessions. Um, for me, research, although is really important, I've probably always had to fit it in more of a kind of, as a hobby in a way. Um, so a lot of the research I do is probably in my own time. Um, the medical director role, although it's meant to be a 50-50 job in terms of 50 clinical, 50 medical director, the, the job kind of um, evades all part in my time. Um, so yeah, it, it is busy um, and at times it can feel a bit overwhelming in terms of time. Um, but I think that, you know the easy thing would to, to drop would be the research because I don't have to do it as such. But as I said, I, I do really enjoy it. Um, and I, it, I don't find it a stress or as much of a burden. I enjoy the research. So um, I think that's it. You know, if you want this kind of role, you've got to accept that your time is going to be very full. Um, but if you enjoy it, then it's, a, it's, it's easier to do it. Okay, all right. And <clears throat> what you, you talked about coaching. Um, not everybody will necessarily have the resource or access, although what I can tell people is that there's uh, something called the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management. And if you go to their website, they have a uh, number of coaches that you can uh, link up with uh, for coaching. <clears throat> and, and I think that's a, it's a valuable thing. Now, it tends to be something that, you know, senior people, senior leaders access, I think, more commonly. Um, what are, and you mentioned mentoring with respect to, to research. Um, do you think we need to do more um, in terms of mentoring or coaching within the lung cancer community? I know you obviously think wider with in terms of the Marsden and, and the collection of, of different cancer pathways, but how do we, how, what's the best way of developing leadership and mentoring? And of course, you know, Sajid Javid just 
uh, announced a whole leadership review across the NHS and social care. But thinking about our own little part of the world, what can we do actively to encourage mentoring? Yeah, so I don't know how, you know, I don't know that much about how your, um, the lung cancer is um, set up. Obviously, I know quite a lot of the people, but you, any, any teams can benefit from more active mentoring. I think we, it's not something that um, we've historically done that well. And, you know, that you've got very good people in the, you know, um, in, in the lung cancer community who I'm sure would be very happy to provide more formal or, you know, descriptive informal mentoring to, to, to more junior colleagues. So I think, you know, if you identify some of the senior people who you think would, would be good at it and allocate for, you know, um, how many people they can take on and mentor. And we do it at the Institute of Cancer Research. So they match um, colleagues who are in a totally different uh, sphere to me. So I'm not, not someone, for instance, doing prostate radiotherapy and I'm, I'm, I'm a designated mentor for them. And it, we meet three or four times a year, but they also have my phone number. I'm there just as a sounding board. Um, and the feedback is that, that the juniors find it extremely useful because the mentors don't come in with any agenda about the, their research and no kind of preformed ideas about what they're doing. And, you know, they can give them more career advice. Also, you know, just give them a completely neutral view of the trial idea they may be discussing. Um, so I think that sort of thing you could, you, you know, it, it's quite easy to institute as well. You just have to have the people who are willing to do it. Yeah, okay. I think, I think it's a note for self um, to, to see how at VTOG we might be able to support that. There was a question on Slido, sort of related, uh, what initially led you to get a coach? It was, it was, a good, it was good. So uh, my brother-in-law, who is nothing to do with medicine, he works in, uh, in, in the finance industry in South Africa, and he, he did something similar to me. He took a big step up in an organization, um, and he was given a coach at the time by, you know, this was in the private sector um, and said how useful it was. And I discussed it with my CEO and she said, you know, realized I was taking a very big step, having not been in um, a leadership role before and said, if that's what you, you know, I'm happy to try. And so she organized a coach for me. Obviously the organization had to pay for it, um, but I did find it extremely useful. Okay, all right. Um, so well, look, this morning's session um, was about developing your pathways and thinking about pathways, setting up services. And, and of course, in some ways, you, you've worn both hats as an oncologist leading a certain uh, uh, group. You're also on the receiving end as medical director. And as you said, you have to make decisions. So um, is somebody receiving proposals? Um, from cancer pathways saying that we need 10 more oncologists and 20 more radiologists and this that and the other everything's rubbish what advice would you give to a lung cancer lead who is developing proposals for investment in their service presenting it to somebody like you what makes your life yeah, easier good, to good point. yeah good point um so Obviously, it, you need to know what what environment you're working in and what the financial constraints are, because that that will often determine you know the reality of whether or not any investment is likely to go ahead. So, understanding the the financial environment 
from which you're working in is key. And then the key thing is to keep the proposal as focused as possible on what improved outcome you're aiming to deliver. So, you know, if present the what 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 is the problem and then how you are going to de deliver the improved outcome. Going in and just saying it's it's a rubbish service and we just need to fix it isn't really you know it's it's not the the way I would choose to approach it. I, I would say these are the problems. This is um, this is the solu proposed solution, and this is the outcome we expect to deliver. And then you go into the cost and the infrastructure and the resources you're going to need to do that. Um, business cases or whatever are always going to be far more likely to be successful if they are either revenue neutral or revenue generating. Um, they can't always be. But if they're not going to be revenue generating or revenue neutral, then they need to fix a problem that is otherwise, you know, going to lead to detriments in patient safety or poor poor outcomes. So, you know, I think that's that's the way you should try and think about it. Okay, I think that's really helpful, especially the outcomes. I mean, um, um, I don't know if you had a, a chance to tune in this morning, but Richard Bouton showed a slide of the lung cancer screening program and projected outcomes if an investment was made based on the stage shift from you know three and stage three and four cancers to one and two over the next decade with lung cancer screening, um, investing in lung cancer screening. So exactly what you just described, the, the outcomes uh, of the proposed change. Okay, great. Um, uh, the, the next question uh, I have is about horizon scanning. So presumably at the Marsden, you've got a whole, what do you call a collective of, of, of oncology or cancer pathways? So you've got a whole gaggle of oncologists. Um, each of them will want to um, improve on their, their pathways. Um, you as an organization, presumably, have to you know, are planning for the future too. With lung cancer, we, we've seen massive gains with respect to survivorship, although it might not feel that at the moment necessarily all the time, with some of the new drugs and treatments that we have. And for some lung cancer, I hope we, we, we change it to a chronic disease. With that in mind, how do you plan um, at, a, at a sort of an organizational level? Because then there's so much more follow-up, so many more CTs to be done, so many more clinic spaces, so many more drugs. How, how do you plan that? That's that's a huge it's a huge question. But um, if I take you know um, lung as an yeah, example, sure. um, so yeah, I mean lung has been well in my career. I mean, although I don't treat lung cancer, it's totally transformed from when I was a registrar. You know, we metastatic lung cancer got got a ten gray single fraction really, and occasionally a bit of platinum based chemotherapy, and which didn't work very well. Um, and now you know. You know, we patients who are coming into our medical oncology clinics, and you know, they're there five years later, having presented with metastatic disease, and the disease is controlled. It is, it has been totally transformative. So, and that you know, that has happened by largely by targeted therapies. Um, and so, if we brought that concept out, it's about personalising all of the aspects we do from early diagnosis. Um, uh, to 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 targeted treatments, um, and that's the way we're thinking at the Marsden. So it's sort of the smarter kind of treatment. So not just you know molecular targeted drugs, but but more but but better surgery, better radiotherapy, more st you know, stereotactic radiotherapy. All of these together are about individualizing the the, the care of e each patient. Um, 
and also I think you know enhancing technology so looking at at the way AI is going to to influence this using um, digital pathology you know I think is going to be absolutely key um, you know I, I, some, I sometimes joke with um, Professor Popat that you know for someone like me, when we start using these molecular reports in prostate cancer, which is starting to come in, but then nowhere near as common in lung cancer, I want the idiot's guide version. I want the, you know, the paint by pictures. This is the mutation. This is the drug you give. Um, because we're not all going to have time to become molecular experts. Um, so we've got to de deliver systems that allow us to, to work with these new top technologies a lot more efficiently. And I think lung is, you know, it's going to be one of the, the role models because things have transformed so quickly. And we're learning so much. I mean, I think I'm right in saying now about 40% of people have a targeted, a targeted mutation in lung cancer, and that's probably you know 35% more than it was four or five years ago. So you know it has moved dramatically quickly, and I think it's that's going to continue. But it's it's really what an exciting time to be in oncology. No, it, it, it's fantastic, um, and. Uh, 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 but it does bring its its challenges. So, for example, one one of the things um, in our uh, institution is the the number of it's a great problem to have. It's a first world problem. The number of um, follow ups you need to do um, your 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 oncology suite, the the longevity of people, which is fantastic, then creates other things. So, I think the reason I'm asking that question is for for a new lung cancer lead. Because the service is going to be transformed, I hope, and lung cancer becomes a chronic disease if it's not cured immediately through early detection. Um, I imagine the paradigm and, and the shift in our, you know, our current services are going to need to be transformed. Um, uh, and you know, uh, thinking about long-term follow-up of these patients, um, sequential treatments. Um, so I'm guessing you have to do that at a, an organisational level. But a new lung cancer lead is going to start needing to perhaps start thinking about that now because a lot of these things have a uh, will evolve over time. Yeah, and I think that's right. So again, though, I mean, I think you have to think intelligently about how we how we how we how we follow patients up. So the first thing is about do do you need a hospital based follow up or can it be virtual? Um, what, what's going to be the role, role, role for, for circulating tumor DNA, um, which I think is going to be huge. Um, so, you know, where we're bringing pay, people back for regular scanning, you know, possibly they're going to have, you know, a, an exit circulating tumor DNA test and then one at six and 12 months. And, you know, then you start to get a lot more confident that actually genuinely these patients aren't relapsing. Um, so I think you, we have to think more intelligently about how we follow patients up. And it will be it will be tumor site specific. And again, I think lung may be one of the ones where we can change things um, sooner than we might do in other pathways because of the 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 developments at the molecular level. But what you don't want to do is to just stick with the current where you're going to bring you know 35 follow-up patients back to a clinic every Wednesday afternoon. I think you know we've got we we can already do better than that even even just using uh, virtual technologies um, even, you know we can do better than that okay brilliant and um i think finally um if you if somebody was starting as a lung cancer lead what three things would you advise um what three things would i advise um 
Yeah, I suppose build build a team around you. That's really 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 important. You can't you know you know you're not going to manage the service on your own. Um, identify where your problems are, um, and so you need to know in your organisation. You know, uh, and that'll be very different in every organisation. But there will be there will be things that need improving. So you need to identify what they are, um, and then go into it with passion. Um, you know, it, it'll be fun, but it'll also be hard. So, go, you know, go for it. Okay, brilliant. A wise words and, and a fabulous presentation. Thanks very much. Um, so I'm going to hope that uh, Josie's around <clears throat> and we can start um, our next session. So uh, Josie, welcome. Um, so Josie uh, Roberts is a Macmillan nurse, uh, a lung cancer specialist nurse at Rotherham FT. Uh, and a non-medical prescriber, and uh, you also run, I think, a communication training program, uh, which, is, uh, of course, is, is critical to us all. So, um, Josie, you're going to talk about team working and the MDT, uh, something that is, is just crucial to, to, you know, for our pathways and to keep um, everything going and, and to provide the best experience for our patients. So, over to you and thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Angie, and thanks for inviting me to speak. So, yes, I've been asked to look at team working and the MDT. I'm also a member of Lung Cancer Nursing UK and obviously represent nationally lots of nursing issues on that. No conflict of interest. So the aims were, were looking at ways of optimising team working in the MDT, effective team working and improving team working. And I'm sure we're all aware that organising a functional multidisciplinary lung cancer service is a challenging yet rewarding process. But an important aspect of MDT lung cancer care is an emphasis on patient-focused care and to improve the patient journey through collaboration, communication and the streamlining of diagnostics and treatment. So what are the benefits of MDT working? Certainly improved consistency, continuity, coordination and cost effectiveness of care, essential that we improve communication between health professionals, we're improving clinical outcomes, increase recruitment into clinical trials and opportunities to improve audits. But also we need to um, acknowledge that it's increased satisfaction and psychological well-being of patients. It provides educational opportunities for health professionals and support from a collegial environment as well as increased job satisfaction and psychological well-being of team members. Getting it right first time uh, also told us that it's multidisciplinary care is the cornerstone of lung cancer care and that MDT meetings accompanied by MDT clinics on the same day is the proposed model of care that ensures close interdisciplinary collaboration to meet patients' needs. And the MDTs are an important means for discussing potential options for a patient based on all the available results and that they should be attended by all core members and held at least once weekly. That we should have streamlining of the MDT, this should be undertaken as standard to enable us to have greater efficiency of the meeting and for patients with more complex disease to have appropriate time for decision making. This is really important, as we know, with advances in treatment and, and decision making for our patients. But that communication of outcomes from an MDT should be rapid 
and comprehensive, both to patients and to primary care and to all other relevant clinicians as necessary. So how do we achieve patient-centred care in an MDT? Because I think this, as we've said, is key. And really importantly is the communication and the collaboration that goes on around that. It's about informed decision-making and for these continuous assessments for our patients, for their personal outcomes, enable us to look at advanced uh, care planning. We can look at personal needs and beliefs and cultures. It needs to address all patients through the emergency, inpatient, outpatient, community care, and looking at personal goals. Patients need to be aware of the MDT, of its purpose, its membership, when it meets, and that their case has been or has been discussed, and that they're given the outcome within a locally agreed timeframe. All patients' views and preferences, holistic needs are presented by someone who's actually met the patient, and a named individual at the MDTA's responsibility for identifying a key worker. And that and a named individual's responsibility for ensuring the patient's information needs have or will be assessed. And that patients are given information consistent with their wishes on their cancer, their diagnosis, the treatment options. And this is sufficient enough to make a well-informed choice and decision on their treatment and care. But throughout all this, it's essential that this is conducted with empathy and compassion. And there's a major role of the nurse within the MDT for providing this. So what are the challenges in setting up a functional MDT? We're all aware that time commitment is essential and attendance, that there's dedication in providing support to the MDT, that we have clear leadership, People are aware of the roles, the processes, communication throughout, and resources that are available to us. Inappropriate job planning and time management can compromise clinicians' MDT attendance. So all, all MDT members should have dedicated and protected time to attend the MDT and subsequent MDT clinic, and these activities should be planned appropriately. And job plans should include additional time to cover the administrative duties that arise from the MDT. As I'm sure, again, we're all aware, the MDT is not just about having that meeting weekly, but it's all the continuous preparation and input that is necessary for it to be successful. And without that being done, a series of events can create a vicious circle and that will impact on the quality of MDT discussions. So back in 2012, we were introduced to the DREAM MDT for lung cancer, which was aspirational with 30 recommendations, which was intended to stimulate discussion among the lung cancer community on how an effective MDT can help to deliver high quality lung cancer care, again, to improve outcomes for our patients. And although this was aspirational, some recommendations were already in place in some areas, but it also clearly identified the role of healthcare professionals involved in the pathway. I think what we have to also look at then it was when with COVID-19 and lung cancer and this has probably been the biggest um, potential challenge not just to lung cancer but to all of us working. It affected all areas of healthcare but the lung cancer pathway was particularly affected. To reduce the risk of COVID-19 exposure to both patients and staff, there was a general 
moved to virtual working, including MDT meetings and patient consultations. I think we have to bear in mind the individual impact of COVID on all of us. And certainly within our trust, um, our lead clinician was asked to work obviously on the acute wards as respiratory physicians. They obviously had to deal with lots of the COVID. People were redeployed, nurses were redeployed. And it was difficult to, to actually keep this working. But I think what we really have to be clear on is the impact on the patient through COVID. The fears of attending hospital, the fears of attending for x-rays and CT scans was paramount. Patients were shielding, there'd been changes to treatment and the big impact this had on, on their treatment pathway and certainly on things such as pre and rehabilitation. As we were aware, and, and Gert has also said, the greater use of IT will continue into the future. But a careful balance must be struck to ensure communication and support of both patients and colleagues is optimised. I think we've seen some very positives with virtual working and it has worked well in certain areas and people have been able to access MDTs via Teams. So we've not lost the attendance, but obviously the face to face has been different. And I think equally, we need to embrace uh, virtual working for patients as well. I want to speak a little bit about Rotherham, um, because I think this is obviously fundamental. We're a um, district general hospital, Rotherham's in South Yorkshire, and our cancer um, centre is Sheffield. Patients are referred to the Northern General Hospital for surgery, for EBUS, for PET scans and to Western Park Hospital for radiotherapy and chemotherapy treatments, although we do have an outreach chemotherapy service. Um, it's a socially deprived area, and so it's, we see lots of, uh, obviously many, many cancers, but particularly lung cancer. As we know, there's around just under 48,000 new cases a year nationally, and it's a major cause of morbidity and mortality with smoking and social deprivation being higher there. And Rotherham as, as a town fits all those sort of categories. We have a higher than national incidence and we have a higher than national mortality rate. But interesting, our one year survival, uh, recent figures was 37% versus 36. RMDT is on a Thursday morning, uh, core members attending, respiratory physicians, radiologists, histopathologists, oncologists, thoracic surgeon, lung cancer nurse specialists, um, palliative care, and the respiratory, oncology and thoracic surgery clinics run simultaneously on the same day. I also just wanted to comment that Rotherham was actually one of the MDTs that participated in the opening doors to treatment research, um, which was a project which identified the impact of the lung CNS on patients accessing treatment really interesting project to be part of and clearly sort of explained the importance of the role of the lung cancer nurse throughout the patient patient journey. So throughout we have to address the impact on communication and clinical decision making because communication between all members of the MDT is essential to ensure patient-centered treatment decisions are made and it's effective communication for the patient and carer ensuring that their informed choices about treatment are based on authoritative and clear explanations of the options, that it's with holistic support and also support for carers addressing their information and support needs which may differ from the patient 
and again COVID and the impact this has had has been has been obviously paramount for all of us over the last 18 months. But also communication and collaboration outside of the MDT is essential in ensuring that the actual MDT remains efficient and streamlined. I think uh, certainly in Rotherham, all patients for discussion must have been seen by a core member of the MDT, they're presented by the respiratory physician, but as I've said, it's the work that goes on behind the scenes of the MDT that must be acknowledged in maintaining an effective MDT discussion. The patient must remain at the heart of the discussions and face-to-face -face appointments were maintained throughout COVID in Rotherham, although telephone consultations were offered. To help demonstrate this, I wanted to present a case study um, that we've discussed through our MDT, um, certainly with the pandemic as this patient presented in February of 2020. So a chest X-ray alert was reported on the uh, was done on the 12th of February and reported. And at Rotherham, we were implementing the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway at that point, where the lung CNS we receive alerted reports. We then contact the patients and invite them to the next available um, appointment. Our clinics run daily with our chest physicians for our one-stop clinics. So I contacted the patient, Danny, and asked him to come and see the chest physician um, following his recent x-ray uh, to discuss the report in more detail. It was difficult to speak to him at the time. He was obviously upset, so I actually spoke to his daughter-in-law, but he did agree to come and see the respiratory consultant the following day to discuss the x-ray. Sorry about that image, not very good, but that was the initial x-ray that we were presented with. So this is a 71-year-old male. They had been recently bereaved. His wife had died of metastatic breast cancer the previous week, hence the hesitation with the phone call and his upset. His performance status was one, he's a current smoker, and past medical history of COPD. He'd actually had a resolved cough and purulent sputum, but his chest x-ray showed this nodular opacity within the left apex. He did agree to stop with us that morning to have a CT scan, which showed a 20 millimeter spiculated left apical nodule and bilateral calcified pleural plaques. I'd like to thank my uh, colleague, Dr. Athi, for supporting me with the slides as well. So he was distressed throughout the consultation. He actually didn't see the point in pursuing investigations. He felt if this was gonna be a cancer, especially lung cancer, what was the point? But through the support given from myself, from the chest physician, Dr. Athey, in encouraging him to have investigations and that there was things that could obviously be done about this, he eventually agreed to stay and have further tests done. He had his respiratory function, full lung function test. Uh, they were all done in a very timely manner with the results showing, as we can see. And his PET CT scan showed intense uptake in this 90 millimeter left apical nodule. So a clinical stage T1B and not M0 was given with a HERDA score of 94%, the images of the PET scan. Discussed at the MDT in February with the clinic appointment following. And again, he was supported by the respiratory physician and the surgeon all on the same day and myself where he did agree to have the thoracic surgery. He had a left upper lobe trisegmentectomy, removing a 32mm adenocarcinoma, PT1C, N0, M0, fully excised on the 10th of March and was for surgical follow-up 
right at the height of the initial sort of pandemic as well. It was continued to be followed up and then his chest x-ray on the 20th of August showed a new right opacity. The CT scan done in September showed a new 9mm right upper lobe nodule, a new 6mm right upper lobe nodule and a new 3mm right upper lobe nodule. Reviewed back in respiratory clinic, PET scan was requested which showed intense uptake in the 9mm right upper lobe nodule showing a T1A and not M0. Again, as the images show. So it was discussed in September 2020, where a clinical diagnosis of lung cancer was made again, and his patient's preference then was for Sabre. Didn't want to have the surgery, although he'd coped well, he'd recovered well, he just didn't want to have surgery again. And he completed Sabre in November. At that time, he was diagnosed with a primary squamous cell carcinoma of the skin, which affected his scalp, and he had radical radiotherapy for that, completed in November 2020 with oncology follow-up. Fortunately, Dr. Dasak, clinical oncologist, treat both the uh, lung cancer and the um, skin cancer. But I think, again, it makes us realise that, you know, lung cancer is not the person. They have so many other things going off in their life and the support needed is, is just increases throughout. In July of this year, his CT chest showed that the previously cavitated 9mm right lobe nodule was more solid with a 9mm ground glass nodule in the right apex and a new 10mm speculated nodule in the right upper lobe. He'd had further uh, treatment for this squamous cell carcinoma of the scalp. He had excision there. He went on to have a PET CT in August, 17th of August, which showed intense uptake in a tiny right upper lobe nodule and a clinical diagnosis of a further right upper lobe cancer CT1N0 was made. The images as we can see. So again, we brought him back to MDT in, on the 19th of August for, to discuss what we do next. Was this going to be ongoing oncology review? Was it to have further saber or further surgery? But I think we have to appreciate what this chap's gone through in the 12 months, 12 to 18 months of his treatment. He's lost his wife, he's had treatment, he's had treatment for a second cancer. So the support that was needed throughout by the lung CNS, through the, the entire team, is essential. In September um, 2021, last month, he was seen both in oncology, in oncology clinic and the surgical clinic. And at this time, Danny has opted for CT surveillance. He feels well, he wants to enjoy his quality of life presently, so he actually declined further treatment. And we support him with that. And I think, again, we have to obviously recognise patients' preference, what they want. So although we've got treatments available, it's essential that we support patients in what their treatment decision is at that point. He's had support from all core members of the MDT, and this has been provided throughout. And I just wanted it to demonstrate the excellent teamwork that we have and what is necessary for these patients. Throughout his holistic needs assessments, he's has identified continuing psychological problems, much of it due to losing his wife, um, but also financial concerns. 
which we've been able to address through Macmillan grants. We've been able to refer to local cancer care centre as these are now opening up again. And throughout ongoing smoking cessation support has been provided. And that's also been very difficult for him. So obviously he was advised to stop smoking and support was provided. But with, when patients are going through this, obviously they will lapse and sometimes start the cigarettes again. And it's really, really important that we continue to support them to try and quit. So I just wanted that to demonstrate the importance of teamwork in the MDT and that that is key, I think, to a successful MDT and also to, to remove barriers. So where they are that we actually have discussions both inside the MDT and out of it. COVID-19 has demonstrated that this is even more paramount. It's become more difficult, but it identifies the role of the lung CNS and the MDT working, which is continuous from pre-diagnosis and throughout treatment. And the importance of supporting our patients and carers with regular telephone contact um, as necessary. But that by referring to MDT colleagues, to, by ensuring the care and supports provided, addressing symptoms, psychological support, whilst continuing patients to remain independent and to improve or maintain performance status and quality of life has been essential throughout. And I'd just like to finish with this picture of our local MDT, obviously during COVID, um, a, a recent one. Um, and very many thanks to the support that's been given for this. Our lead clinician, Dr. Kreshi and Dr. Athi, our thoracic surgeon, Ms. Sochi, Dr. Das, clinical oncologist, Dr. Abreri, our consultant pathologist, and Dr. Julius, consultant radiologist, myself and MDT coordinator, Leslie. But obviously people have joined through teams, that's a much bigger team, that's just what we had to actually reduce further, but we're now opening up more face-to-face -face visits, which is obviously improved and hopefully we can continue to do that. Thank you. Brilliant, thanks everything much Josie. Um, so a few questions um, from me to begin with, if that's okay. Um, with with COVID and, and communicating to patients, what was what was that like? I think that's been extremely difficult um, for all of us, and I, I think to some extent we've always had telephone consultations. That's been a big part of our work, but to structure these more um, was really important. We didn't have the technology straight away. We didn't have the virtual working through iPads or laptops. So most of it's been telephone. Um, but we were very proactive, certainly at the beginning, we were ringing patients as, as much as we possibly could. Certainly when trying to encourage them to come for investigations was a, was a big problem, I'm sure we've all seen that. Um, but I think it's something that training is necessary for people starting in this. We need to have more training in having telephone consultations. I think particularly trying to identify with patients that they need more than that because invariably, you know, many people will answer the phone and will say, I'm fine, which tells us nothing really. Um, so I think we need yeah. more, much more impetus on that. Now there'll be um, places across the country who are currently using video consultations. Um, are you using it um, in your neck of the woods yet? We, we have, it's not fully up and running. I think we need more of that. But um, I think however good video consultations are, however good we improve our telephone skills and assessing patients, I think it's essential that we still have face-to-face -face 
um, appointments. You know, I think the clinical examination is essential and sadly that's where things have been missed, where patients may have then been admitted with advanced or recurrent disease simply because they, you know, they've never thought to mention something that wasn't particularly bothering them at the time of that telephone call. So I think that's been, um, been important. Okay. Now, um, I'm going to go to a tricky area and I realise there's not an answer, but one of the remits of the talk was difficult colleagues. So, you know, we all work in big teams and I think we also recognise, I recognise anyway, sometimes it only takes one person to upset an entire team. Any advice? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important question. So when I first was discussing this presentation with my colleagues, um, and I, I suppose because we have a good working relationship, but we have had difficult colleagues we've, that we've mentioned. We've, we've had in the past, um, it's the pathologists who didn't see the point in doing further genetic testing, or it's lung cancer, it's either non-small cell or small cell. So it's how you addressed that. It's very much around, again, around communication. And if there's an obstructive colleague within the MDT, I think essentially it's important that that's addressed outside of that arena prior to further MDTs by the clinician or whoever it is, because, you know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be having that. Obviously, the MDT is good for discussion. You want people to give their opinions. That's, that's not difficult colleagues as such. But I think if you've got a colleague that's actually not... Uh, performing well in MDT, that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed much higher. What I did find very interesting talking to colleagues is that people like coming to lung MDT because it's the best one to come to and I think that's, you know, is that an essence of how we all work so well together but that in other MDTs, you know, there are lots of problems, people get up and walk out, you've not got that um, cohesion I, I, I suppose. So how to address that that is difficult, but I think it needs to address in by how, you know, we can't ignore it, essentially. It has to be addressed. So I wonder if I might, because um, again, the purpose of today is really to help people who are leading their services. And, and, uh, and I suppose for me, one of my reflections is um, peer, peer pressure or, or peer behaviour. So sometimes when you've got a difficult colleague and actually everybody else in that MDT is functional, respectful of each other, um, then that's probably one of the, the better ways to bring around colleagues who are not behaving um, as they should and not being respectful. So I suppose leading by example, um, peer pressure um, to um, help individuals um, really work with the rest of the team is probably something um, that, that can be used um, and, and data sometimes if it's about poor performance um, sometimes data uh, will help that but these are really difficult issues for a lead clinician of a lung yeah. cancer pathway let alone just an MDT meeting but within a lung cancer pathway there are people who don't necessarily come to the MDT meeting itself but the lead lung cancer the lead physician may have to deal with and, and sometimes these people may not have a whole lot of experience um, so I think that uh, one of the things from the previous talk that uh, Nicholas Fanaz talked about was phoning a friend um, it often feels like a lonely place if you're the leader 
you've got not you don't necessarily feel you have anybody to draw on um, collecting the information and the facts triangulating information um, all of these things will help I think manage colleagues that, that may be difficult who may be having you know things going on that you don't know about um, and uh, actually may need support so they may not be deliberately being difficult as it were yeah. um, so I think yeah. these are things that as an MDT we have to consider because uh, I think lung cancer more than any other team or as much as any other team um, the, the total is greater than the sum of the parts we can achieve much more um, with working together and just something you mentioned there Josie about everybody loves a lung MDT in my trust they call the lung MDT the love MDT because <laughs> um, because we're also you know we all get on so well and the MDT goes well as compared to other MDTs um, okay so yeah I don't think I don't think that's important but I think if we're working in a functional MDT and we're aware that others are not it's actually trying to pass on some of what we do that makes it work and certainly again as a, a CNS working within that team um, if I'm made to feel uncomfortable outside again of the MDT it's like you said approaching the person and just saying you know can I just ask why you thought that idea or that suggestion wasn't relevant and what I have found sometimes is they've not even realized they've said that or they've not realized they've said things in maybe a derogatory manner so it's just really approaching that as well it's having the confidence I think to do that but equally passing that on to other colleagues you know for example when so-and-so said that what did you think if nothing said it's, it's having the, the confidence to address these problems before it becomes a much bigger issue I think that is important. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jeanette's just um, asked a question uh, about reassuring patients. Um, so during the height of COVID, and even now to a large extent, um, uh, patients aren't necessarily always seeing that, you know, some of the follow-ups by telephone. Patients are scared of coming to hospital because of the worry of contracting COVID, but equally they don't want their care to be... Um, uh, you know, um, second best, as it were, because things aren't being picked up. How have you been able to reassure patients with those sort of fears? Um, I think that's been continuous, trying to explain the safety measures that have been put in place, especially when people were fearful of coming for x-rays and CT scans. We had quite a lot of that in the beginning. Um, but actually demonstrating that we were fun still functioning in the hospital, you know, that's really important. And that certainly for outpatient clinics, obviously for many patients, the only images of hospital they saw was the intensive care units, um, you know, the, the real severe COVID patients. And it's almost like they'd forgotten what was happening behind the scenes. So we've certainly been clear that, you know, our clinics are running, they're functional, they're clean, we're, we've got social distancing in place and as safe as they possibly can be. And I think also ensuring that patients are aware that they have got to weigh up the safety and the, and the risks of not coming to hospital because of COVID, but, it, but the risk of having something missed by not having their scans and being assessed properly. So it was getting that message across to them, again, through communication skills and, and just explaining as clearly as possible to patients what was necessary. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Um, what about um, in terms of the team working? Do you do anything specifically about with team building? So you know, 
there's often a, a churn, there's new members join a team, uh, others perhaps leave. Uh, what, do you do anything with team building in terms of the whole lung cancer pathway for all or the MDT members? We go out for a drink and a meal. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the ways we, we do. We generally, well, we certainly did prior to COVID and we've started. And I think we've, we have always appreciated that actually meeting outside of work has always been beneficial. So we, um, certainly one of my colleagues is our um, social organiser and we do regularly um, as much as possible. Because I think that's important, you know, we're all human beings, um, but, but that's, I think that's a really good way of doing that. Team building as well is, I think it's been difficult through COVID because we've, we've had such a strict cohort of people attending face to face. So junior staff have not been able to attend necessarily where they might have had a patient on a ward. Um, so that's been influential to some extent. So it's trying to support them out of the MDT as well. But we've had no sort of specific team building courses. Um, it's just something that we try and do through clinics. Cake in clinic and socialising yeah. out of work, I think, is important. I think that's a prescription, is it? That, that, sounds, um, that sounds really good. I think one more question from me. Well, a reflection first. I think one of the themes that has run through all of the talk so far today, whether it was Matt's this morning or yours today, and or yours just now is is purpose and having a common purpose and one of the slides that you put up early on in the talk with the patient in the center and everything else around it and i think that i think as a, as a lung cancer team we tend to feel that common purpose and i think whether it's dealing with a difficult colleague whether it's um managing the pathway whether it's bringing in new innovations as long as the team has that vision and that that common purpose it, it helps doesn't it i think yeah, I think that's absolutely key. I really do. And I think if if you then join a team that has that, it, it, again, it establishes that that's what we're there for and that that's maintained. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And then one, one final question is, do you feel that your management team, you know, the, the sort of operational managers or the, the cancer manager, if there is one, do they take part regularly in MDTs or the pathway? Are they visible? They are if you need them, in fairness. I mean, they're there. They're not involved in the actual MDT weekly running as such, but if necessary, and they've been certainly been there when we've had issues with technology uh, when we first started the remote uh, teams working, so we've had access to that. Um, and I, I think, again, we need to recognise their part in this running of you know, MDTs. Yeah, they might not be visible, but if we do have a problem, then we, we know we need to know who to go to to address that. But I think it, it, yeah. it's the, like I said, it's the much more than the, just the core members in an MDT. It's the much wider remit. And it's important from us that we actually pass all that information on to other people that is relevant, especially if we're having problems with that. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think actually we're really lucky um, in, in my sense. We've got a fantastic lung cancer manager um, so, uh, and, and bringing them in, making them feel part of the team and being part of that common purpose has been really helpful for yeah. us. But listen, thanks ever so much, Josie. Really appreciate that. Um, we're going to have a, we're going to have a break now, uh, and then we'll be back for, uh, the talk, um, from Dave Baldwin, uh, on governance. So, uh, I hope everybody gets to have a cup of tea, um, and, uh, do whatever you need to do. Uh, and we'll see you back here in about 15 minutes, quarter past two. Thank you.
And welcome back to this afternoon's session. Um, we are very lucky to have David Baldwin with us next. Um, David Baldwin uh, is a consultant in respiratory medicine in Nottingham, just up the road from me. He is chair of the UK Clinical Expert Group in Lung Cancer. He's been a big driver and proponent of the Lung Cancer Screening Programme and of course has worked on many guidelines um, related to lung cancer. Now, as a new lung cancer lead, um, it's probably one of the areas that people may not be aware of, and that is governance and, and how to deal with the governance within the service, as especially with new services coming on stream. So, um, David, over to you, your talk on governance. Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed, Sanjay. And thanks for asking me to sort of tackle this uh, topic, which can sometimes uh, bring back memories of uh, maybe uh, less favourable job interviews where you've been asked about the, the pillars of clinical governance. Um, these are my, my, my conflicts. Um, and um, I'm just going to try to discuss how to run a service which is effective and safe by using the various tools that are available through the clinical governance uh, process. Um, so as I'm sure people that have been through in job interviews or preparing for job interviews uh, will remember, there's often a governance question that you have to prepare for. And um, I have to say, it, it comes over a bit dry in job interviews, but actually in the real world, these pillars of governance that are listed here or, or similar ones um, are actually um, tools that you can use uh, to make sure that um, you design and run a service very effectively. And you can see they're all listed there and they are very much interlinked. You, you know, one thing does not stand alone. Um, it's sort of almost artificial separating, but also quite useful. So I'm gonna try to go through these and illustrate um, some of the ways in which the uh, pathways can be uh, developed and, and, uh, and um, implemented as a result of the governance pro process and then ensure that they're safe. So first of all, um, clinical effectiveness and research. Well, research really should underpin most of what we do. In reality, it often doesn't. It certainly does drive some clinical practice and guidelines now are increasingly very carefully constructed so that they're evidence-based, such that sometimes you will have um, recommendations that aren't based on evidence because the evidence itself that you thought was quite good in fact doesn't stand up. So these are very useful. And we have um, then this linking in with clinical effectiveness because this is essentially trying to define the best outcomes for patients. And we have um, national guidelines that can be locally implemented which will ensure clinical effectiveness because they're evidence-based. We have national service frameworks which uh, enable you to implement the guidelines and the, the best practice. And then also you need to develop local tested protocols where needed, but only when they're needed and not when there is a national guidance that might say otherwise. And we sometimes see this, that people go in their own way without looking at the national guidance. So what, what I'll try and do here is illustrate where we have developed a national framework which is the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway and how this is used um, with the tools that we have in the governance process to achieve what we want to achieve. And the, the objectives of course are to accelerate, standardize and optimize to reduce unwarranted 
variation and reduce some of the things that we see in the lung cancer world which is not favorable such as emergency admission rates and the very poor compliance with waiting times targets and then we also want to improve efficiency by better processes and improve the outcomes i.e the clinical effectiveness and the patient experience let's wait for it to reconnect Oh, that's great, thank you. Uh, so this is um, one of the slides that you probably see frequently, the National Lung Cancer Pathway, a pathway on a single page but with long tail. And you can see that, the, for example, this first part of the pathway originally is really an evidence base, and only sub subsequently have we supported the evidence uh, through randomized controlled trials. So sometimes the research follows the pathway uh, rather than the pathway following the research. It's a framework and um, the, the, the pathway has become slowly more detailed. So now we have these diagnostic standards of care which are aimed to um, point people in the right direction to standardise the way we do things. So further attention to trying to standardise and optimise what we do. And this is one of the diagnostic standards of care which gives pretty specific ideas and, and instructions as to what one should do according to what the apparent stage of the cancer is on the initial CT scan. And, and very, very helpful, I think, to many uh, units, especially people that may be uh, starting out and trying to get the most efficient service. And then we have targets and best practice. So here there's one of the time treatment pathways, which was developed by a number of uh, experts in the area, giving the the maximum waiting times on the left-hand side, um, referring to the National Optimal Pathway position, but also a number of best practice pointers, which is another way that you can improve services. How many of these best practice pointers may well help in your service? So these are all frameworks. Once you've um, done something or you're about to do something, then a good idea is to do an audit. And these um, are available from the point of view of national audits, which are very useful at looking at an overview, for example, variation in uh, what we do. Uh, but also local data is often applied from the national audit. And the issue there is, is this a true reflection of what's actually happening? And we know from the National Lung Cancer Audit that occasionally people will, in actual fact, we don't recognize uh, what's happening uh, in our trust in, in, in the reflection of the, the national figures. And this is where you need to do a local audit where you've got much better control of your data quality and there you can really identify what's going on and sometimes there are some surprises from that. Now we have a lot of data in the UK, we're really lucky actually in a sense that we have such good data. We have the National Cancer Registration Analysis Service which includes the clinical data set uh, on diagnostics and general um, clinical features of patients, the cancer outcomes and services data set uh, as well as the linked uh, uh, SAT data, uh, an imaging data set and radiotherapy data set. Um, and of course, the National Lung Cancer Audit, which um, has also been incredible in the last uh, 10 years and I'm sure will be in the future. And finally, some primary care data sets, particularly the clinical practice research data link, which can be very useful. The way these are used currently in the, in the, in the process of governance specifically is essentially through the Cancer Alliance um, so, so the, there's a specific uh, data analysis uh, group that work with the Cancer Analysis called CADIUS 
uh, and they produce Cancer Alliance dashboards, which can enable you to drill down by CCG, by trust, by all sorts of different uh, filters to analyze your own service and benchmark it against other services. And of course, it's used quite extensively, often outside of our clinical services by integrated care systems, managers and administrators, uh, and um, used as compa comparator uh, figures for, for different trusts and regional med medical directors use this quite a bit as well. Um, then we have the National Lung Cancer Audit, which produces from very useful annual reports and spotlight audits and sets the top targets, which are very relevant to improving cancer, uh, lung cancer outcomes. The National Lung Cancer Audit has revealed huge unwarranted variation across the, the uh, patch in, in the lung cancer world. This is just one uh, figure looking at the variation in curative intent treatment uh, by CCG of residents at the time, showing really quite marked uh, variation. And then we have this uh, piece of work that was done in Nottingham showing that if you're first referred to a surgical center for your lung cancer, you're much more likely to have surgery for that cancer, having control for a whole variety of different other factors that could extend that problem, showing thing a few years later. So another pillar or tool clinical governance is risk management. And this means having robust systems which enable you to understand, monitor, and minimize the risk to patients and staff and to learn from the mistakes. It includes following, as we've already discussed, protocols uh, which come out of the guidelines, uh, incident reporting, analysis of error and complaints. And it includes way breach analysis, for example, in the cancer pathway, particularly focusing on patients who have long waiting times. And finally, where we might have identified a systematic process of restoration. So from the point of view of path analysis, uh, this is essentially looking at the pathway as a whole and, take, and looking at the time for each. And we look to identify whether the breach is under preference or avoidable, is this a recurring problem? And then we also um, want to look at the harms as a result of this process. Has there been a, a, a stage shift? Uh, a change in uh, treatment as a result of this delay or an adverse outcome that's clearly identifiable. And it's really helpful in these circumstances to have a standard, for, for example, the pathway, which gives you something to benchmark against. And it runs well, it is really easy to audit. A, a, a case that did go rather well, very, very rapid initial diagnosis and a respect of progress to VATS lobectomy. But the key thing here was that the pathway was bundling of tests and rapid pre-booking of areas required. Risk register, as I said, where you've got a relative, a, a systematic problem that you've identified. It may be something that's existing or it's some, something that's anticipated. And here we want to define likelihood this uh, problem is, is, is going to occur in the future or has occurred and the severity of the uh, problem, what mitigation might be appropriate and 
a timeline and responsibilities to implement those mitigations. It's very useful to identify something that requires an extra resource and therefore should be prioritised in the funding stream that, that operate in the various NHS. It is often quite daunting, which appear to be rather uh, subjective in the way they would, but it is when you've got a problem. Educating is um, obviously underpins all of this. If you don't know about the guidelines, if, if you don't know about the relative research and if you don't do audit results, then you're not going to be all that equipped to uh, lead and manage and improve a service. So this, all of these things here are important. And I think local meetings in particular are often neglected and they're very important for a variety of reasons, including updating and making sure everybody understands where they're coming from. And of course, the appraisal process Process is something about personalment, but it does link into this whole process of how well and adequately you're trained. Patient it can take a variety of different forms, but local surveys are extremely um, national. There's re regular national surveys, particularly in uh, the cancer world, the National Cancer Patient Experience Survey. Local hospitals can have patient groups, can, which can provide some very very important feedback and also support for change where, you, where necessary. And then, of course, there's individual feeds, always very, very important. So, I will try to show this uh, slide, which um, John Matt is delighted with, which I think is excellent, a typical example of how to support a pathway through a short and sharp patient survey. So, supporting a rapid pathway, what you do is you send a survey and say, given your GP wondered about the possibility of cancer. So how long would you wait for complete, to complete investigations? And the vast majority, it's less than two weeks, which is well short of the 28-day diagnostic standard that we've just introduced. So it just shows you the patient's expectations are. In uh, our hospital, university hospitals, the local implementation of NOB uh, took a very serious um, and um, well-structured process through um, the getting it the, the um, better for use system in the hospital at the time. We had five work streams. There was a systematic approach to all parts of the pathway and leads in those areas. Uh, there were analyses of the 62 day breaches and discovery meetings, demand and capacity analyses and process mapping as well as audits and benchmark exercises. All these are very important if you're going to take this very seriously and all under the umbrella of development and one of the tools of governance. Uh, information is another pillar and uh, data, as we've seen, as I've talked, I'm sure I've convinced you already, are incredibly important. But they have to be relatively accurate and they have to be complete. Uh, and that's about making sure we do record data uh, fully, which is not always the case. We then understand how it can be used and also how it can be abused and a misinterpret. And of course, if it's individual data, we must, mustn't forget that it has to remain confidential. So we've talked about, I know earlier on, there's been a, a talk about leadership and um, we touched on management of the team um, with Jody in the last talk. Um, I think this is incredibly important. It's one of the pillars of governance and it's about staff and staffing. And if you're going to have a really effective service, if it's going to be safe, then you have to have good. They've been well developed. 
involved in the delivery of what you're doing. They should have good working conditions, not always the case, and they should have good resources, which is not always the case. You have to foster the positive relationships and probably and deal with the less less positive ones. Identify areas of need service which will impact on the individuals, but also in the in themselves through the appraisal process. And above all, encourage openness and willingness to speak up openly as a team member uh, if there are concerns. I was asked just to briefly cover the uh, targeted lung health check and what we tried to do in the context of this uh, process. Um, I think, to be fair, the sudden decision to spend so much money on this, uh, this process was a shock to everyone, not least me. And um, it, caught, it induced panic because I realized that we hadn't actually got the process in place to make sure this was or to try to make sure that this was going to be a well-run program. And therefore, pretty quickly, a standard protocol was written, not a guideline, but a protocol, and followed up by a quality assurance standard, which covers most of what I've talked about in this talk on governance, as well as a lot of other specific, specific factors. And lastly, I'd like to talk just, or mention briefly the peer review process, which Having been in this field quite a long time, I've seen the peer review process make a tremendous difference to cancer services in general and also in lung cancer services. It was originally developed as an idea in the National Cancer Plan of 2000 and began shortly after that. And um, initially, uh, it was an extensive review of services and then downgraded to largely internal reviews which is what it is now, except for particularly trouble uh, sites. And it initially helped to set up the infrastructure of the hub and spoke model, uh, particularly giving extra resources to areas that had uh, poor resources. And then there's the GERFS process, of course, which is not cancer specific, but it does tar target specific topics. And lung the lung cancer GERF process is part way through with uh, this toy being one of the leads of this. And it has considerable power to change services through its links with the um, CQC. So in summary, the pillars are a set of tools used, and that's how you see them. They're interlinked and often overlap. Um, having a systematic approach to governance is essential and ensures, I think, the development of systems and people if it's done properly, measurement of outcomes, service improvement, mitigation of harms, and probably the most important, inclusivity of professionals and patients. Thank you. Um, thanks very much for that, David. Um, so we've got a question from Jeanette, um, and it's a question around um, different types of audit committees. So um, in NHS governance, audit committees differ from clinical audit, and they focus on financial variance, performance, and use of resources. Do you have a feel for where this is looked at with respect to lung cancer? Right, so it's quite a difficult one. Thanks very much for that, for that Jeanette. Um, I think the, so with regards to financial audits, one has to understand that the, 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 the benchmarks are often set against other interventions. And that is the key problem, as far as I can see, with regards to the, 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 the benchmarking of financial 
um, tariffs, etc., is is a, a real minefield. If you take the efficacy, for example, of smoking cessation and the way it's measured, then most people that are auditing and deciding on financial uh, priorities will then say, well, just do smoking cessation, irrespective of the incremental amount of money you might need to spend to make smoking cessation more and more effective. Now, no one wants to argue against smoking cessation, but you can't shelve another service as a result of that. You have to accept that you, spe you spend more. So part of the problem with the, with the financial process, as I see, is that I'm up against this argument where you're, um, you know, an ICS, for example, it's ICS now, isn't it? The modern world is sort of the ICS is. They're making these decisions on the best choices. And the most effective people will be in, that will be, will, will put themselves in a silo and compare like with like and then make a decision on that. So you might be saying, you know, is it is it worth investing in a new LINAC in this particular area and therefore make uh, us uh, have a better better uh, capacity for um, advanced radiotherapy? Or is it better to just um, make the other, the other center work harder, for example? And that will go through a process of the, um, the assessment of the feasibility of the whole, whole thing and the audit of current practice to see where the problems are. And if there is a problem, then and the mitigation is to have a new LINAC, then that's what they'll fund, but it'll be at a cost, and then it will be in competition with all of the other things that there that they've got to got to fund. So I think uh, I'm much more comfortable with a clinical audit, being able to look at a clinical audit and say, you know, this is what we see as a problem, and this is what we see as a significant source of variation, and this could cause harm, etc. So that's. Uh, you do your audit cycle and then you suggest a mitigation and then you see whether that has improved. I'm happy with the clinical side. I have a real problem uh, understanding the process and managing it actually um, through the financial process. And I had nothing at all to do with the Target Gun Health Check Programme um, financial considerations on a national level and the same with the National Optical Lung Cancer Pathway. All I heard were the problems uh, about capacity, difficulties and finances and huge cost uh, but other people sorted that one out and I'm so glad they did very very difficult I mean Jeanette sits on a CCG and now an ICS so she's well aware of all these type, these type of, of arguments that come out and I think it's really really difficult when you do that and I think sometimes for, for clinicians as it were who were on the front line or removed from those discussions you can sometimes not understand what's going on at those levels and the decisions that were made and the, the false decisions if you like almost so it, it can be frustrating and the whole purpose of today in, a, in, a, in is to help new people or people in leadership positions within lung cancer uh, and the next generation of people so this is an area where i think understanding how financial decisions are made how services are commissioned or not commissioned or decommissioned um, is going to be really important and it's a skill set that maybe as a lung cancer community we need to help develop for our, our leaders and our future leaders to make the financial arguments but I'll put that aside for the moment my next question to you David was going to be again somebody coming into the job as a new thing where should they look for potential governance problems? What are the classic areas do you, do you feel that there may be, if there are themes, is there, a, is there somewhere they should look because there might be a problem that they just don't know, it's not been brought to their attention? 
Well, I, I mean, if you're unsure about what where to start, I mean, the first thing to do is to use the frameworks as, as I've um, alluded to. We're quite lucky in lung cancer because we do have these these frameworks that are set out. The peer review process was an area where where we had these these uh, frameworks were there. You had a a series of things that that had been carefully developed, and your job was to see how compliant on these things. And then, of course, all of the tools, the pillars of clinical governance, that you try to fix the problem. And you can, you know, you can, you can look at a problem. So say, uh, as for example, you have a problem with um, your problem. You know, you're not getting immediate CT scans. The radiologist is saying scans for at least two weeks. You know, this is going to be the waiting time. And we're, we can't, because we radiographers, few scanners, we've got too few radiologists, a disaster. If we, if we give you treatment, then we would give everybody else special treatment. That's a real problem. That's a very common problem. So what do you do with that? Well, first of all, you say, well, what are, what are, what are the national standards? What, what, what is everybody else doing? You know, what, what, how do they do it? And you, you then have to go through a whole change management process by bringing together the team. And you use your um, differments of, of your leadership skills, your uh, team working skills, all of which have been discussed today, and you tackle the problem head on by making sure saying, well, this is the standard. This is what we have to achieve. How are we going to do this? And then come up with some good ideas about how this is done. And also then show through, you know, a process of logical argument um, how um, this can work. In other words, so the CT scan that somebody, that's a common argument, isn't it? And so you may not do them straight away. And the only issue, and you have to acknowledge this, is the peaks and troughs. As you, as you make things more and more urgent, you're going to get higher peaks and lower troughs, as it were, because of the, the very short time frames. And it's a very, very slow process. Really slow process that... go through some centers achieve it very very and it's often led by individuals so the whole per point in fostering positive relation you get one person who wants to do something had later the first time have a book to patient so long radiologist that decided this was a good thing and then we all um, for her to so that can be if it's a systematic problem so at the moment for example we in nottingham we've got an issue with the the targeted lung health check pilot which we're now going through the arguments that we just can't cope with this. We're starting there. It's just the same argument as the CT scan problem that we've got. Confident we'll get there. And um, be a process of management and logical argument, and then seeing what we were doing, re reviewing it, developing a new, potentially a slightly modified pathway and a framework for people, uh, making sure they stick to targets, make sure everybody's happy, feel positive about things. Um, enjoy what they're doing and, and feel they're doing a good job. That's all. All about this is very very important. I think, you know, Jody's comments about teamwork and and making sure you're all a happy team. And your comments about the love MDT. I have to say, I think that's probably something you shouldn't say on on the, uh, in public. But oh. anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's great, isn't it? It's what makes you you happy every day. 
you go home happy because you've got a team and i think that's one of the most important things in governance actually yeah can i can i just clarify that there's no impropriety suggested with it being called the loving team but <laughs> anyway right gillette's got another question so um the nlca shows variation in outcomes and services annually um where are actions taken by each trust to mitigate or measure the change impact before the next um, NLCA? That's a very good question. Um, the way the NLCA work is that they identify outliers and um, they the is able to an NLCA report in any case, and that's often used in the process. But when you're an outlier, you have a, a, a letter is written to you to warn you you first of all as a you've been identified as an outlier give you a t give you a time to reset uh, and a warning that uh, to be sent to your term which is what happens so the letter that goes to the chief executive means then that you have to you require an action and normally speaking your problem that the audit figures usually a, a year or two after date anyway so i've already mitigated the problem and and it's very useful because it does give you something that's it's there and the trust don't are not happy if you're an outlier so it's one of the ways in which you can get more lung cancer nurses or you can improve your times etc and improve your uh, rates etc that 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 is quite helpful how is it done well, it depends on the on the on what's been identified so in our case we, we had a, a persistent problem with uh, the number of people that had been seen by a lung cancer nurse specialist are now equivalent to five from 5.8 to 1.8 in the course of three years so not surprisingly we had an over result of that unfavorable um audit result and incredible efforts on Of our lung cancer lead at the time and the nursing lead, we dramatically increased the number of uh, lung cancer nurses. And it, and it, was, it was mitigated. If it's a, if it's a different problem, if you've got a more of a multifactorial problem that could be influencing that. And it requires a sort of more of a more of a complete pathway review to, to to do it, and then to check. And first thing you do is you check your data to see whether it's actually correct or not, uh, and then you take it from there. Okay, brilliant. Listen, David, thank thanks ever so much. That's really insightful, really helpful. And again, for for people who are taking on these positions, I think a lot of what you said will be really helpful for them. So thanks very much. So I'm going to move on now to the the final session, um, which is me, actually, and then we're going to have a um, a Q and A um, at the end. Um, so I was going to start with just summing up and, and some of the things that I've taken away from today. So we started off the day um, with Matt Everson talking about what a lung cancer service um, should look like or, or could be like um, in 2021 and uh, basing it on what he and the team have done in Manchester. Um, and the, some of the things that I took away 
um, was that breaking it down into um, different areas, whether it was um, prevention, and you know, and they worked on the smoking cessation, um, early diagnosis, and the things that you can improve there with a whole rapid pathway. Didn't even cover lung screening because we didn't have that time today. Um, the staging uh, part of the process, um, et cetera, et cetera, and developing protocols for each of those and striving to do the best possible job. And, and I think the thing that came through from Matt's talk for me again was about that common purpose and vision, um, collecting data um, and really thinking through problems with all of the stakeholders. So in his particular patch with the Cancer Alliance, um, thinking about how do you not disadvantage people with, for example, EBUS waiting times by having a, a common EBUS referral system um, sounded really good, although obviously giving uh, giving a, a few headaches here and there. Um, so I thought that that was really um, a really useful conversation to anybody running a lung cancer service, striving for excellence. Um, you're not going to go too far wrong if you can manage some of the things that they've managed to achieve um, in Manchester. Um, second talk was Liz Toy. And the thing that really struck me about what Liz said was using benchmarking to drive improvement. So not using benchmarking to be scared or to, to whip yourself, but to think about how you can use that information positively. And in some ways that also came through there with David's talk on governance, but looking for the unwarranted variation, um, asking the questions of, about why that might be, that you have unwarranted variation, um, assuming um, it's negative, that is, you might have positive unwarranted variation, um, and, and using that data to make change, to, um, again, get a common sense of purpose between you and your colleagues to drive that change. Uh, the third talk with uh, Richard Bouton um, was, again, really insightful, and in some ways he charted the way in which Manchester transformed their services. And I think a few things that he said uh, really struck me. So one of the things he said was when he reflected on the pathway when they started as a team was, this is crap. Um, you know, they, they were willing um, and not scared of saying, well, actually, you know, we could do much better than this. Where we are at the moment isn't great. We need to do more. Um, and this is causing patient harm. And he um, he and the team in Manchester use that to galvanise the team, the multidisciplinary team, all the stakeholders uh, to come up with solutions, a common vision, and then make business cases using the data that they gathered meticulously to drive that change. Um, and the other thing that he said that really struck me, he was quoting somebody else, but he said, um, patients um, wait for capacity, but actually you need capacity to wait for patients. And I think I uh, definitely um, can, uh, you know, uh, most of us are probably in a position where our patients wait for NHS capacity, but we need to turn that paradigm around. The first session of this afternoon, the things I took away from um, Dr. Nicholas uh, Farnas, who's the um, medical director at the Royal Marsden, um, was um, his journey of leadership. And he, I think, pretty eloquently talked about imposter syndrome, about needing help when he started up, um, needing to 
think about where he was going to get help from um, so phone a friend that some of the decisions that you have to make they're not always going to be right but you need to make decisions um, and being brave but fair uh, with decision making um, and it can feel lonely at times uh, and that's why it's really important to um, have friends that you can rely on um, and go to for support um, and, and I think the other thing that came through for me with Richard's talk was um, the passion actually and, and I think he said that he really enjoys research and that's one of the things that he's really held on to um, doing his job and that's um, helped keep the interest up and the passion up for improving services. Um, the next uh, talk we had was from uh, Josie, one of our uh, lung cancer nurse specialist leads um, and we, we, we considered the issue of team working and, and having a cohesive team, a team that enjoys doing what they're doing, keeping patients front and centre and again developing that common vision and purpose with um, colleagues in the MDT, having a well-functioning MDT and if you have um, uh, colleagues uh, uh, having a difficult time or being difficult, working out why that might be the case and supporting them um, and using that common purpose to um, hopefully change behaviour and make the lung MDT even better. Uh, and then the talk uh, from David just now uh, was all about governance um, and David talked about using the frameworks uh, and the protocols that are already out there. There are several of them. There are several national data sets and using those frameworks and protocols to think about um, where your service is, uh, where there might be gaps in governance, where there might be improvements to be made. Um, so for me, there was lots of stuff today that was really thought provoking and useful. So I wanted to just consider the future. If I could have the next slide, please. Can I have the next slide, please? Thank you. Oh, no conflicts of interest. There you go. Um, so, um, so this is uh, one of the uh, uh, quotes that I found that I thought was really relevant to today. So if you're leading your lung cancer service at the moment or you're thinking about it in the future, what you do, uh, the future will depend on what you do today. Um, and I think there's, there's quite a lot of groundwork for us all to do in our lung cancer pathway, in our lung cancer MDT. And thinking this through, if I could have the next slide, please. Um, there's quite a few things in some broad areas that I was just going to cover. But I first wanted to say is that um, for those of you who are leading your lung cancer pathway, it doesn't have to be lonely <clears throat> in case that's how you feel. So at BTOG, we're a broad church. Um, one of the things I love about <clears throat> the BTOG um, work is that it's multidisciplinary. We have um, oncologists, we have radiologists, we have nurses, we have doctors, we have doctors in training. All sorts of people are members of BTOG and all of those members will have been through um, a lot of the things that new people might be facing uh, where it might be daunting and we can network and use that shared experience from within BTOG to support new leaders in this field and, and, and it's very easy to reach out. 
Um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts for sure. So your particular lung cancer team, <clears throat> it's that collective that's going to get you over the line. Um, and, and certainly with BTOG, we have that. The other thing I thought uh, was worth just mentioning is the 25 by 25. This is the UK Lung Cancer Coalition um, and the report that was released almost five years ago now, um, striving for a, a um, survival of 25% by 2025. Unfortunately, that looks like that target looks at, at significant risk pushed back in part by COVID. Um, but hopefully we will get there and hopefully we will, um, in fact, in the next decade or 15, 20 years, uh, considerably um, change that, that target. So <clears throat> what are the things that might be coming along that a lung cancer lead today may need to think about? Well, with respect to prevention, Matt talked about it this morning, and that's uh, embedding smoking cessation services within lung cancer pathways. Um, I think we need to do this um, at scale across the board, and this will complement work going on nationally to uh, provide smoking cessation treatments um, in hospital. So the current national prevalence is about 14%. We're hoping to get that down by to less than 5% by um, 2030, although the likelihood is we'll miss that target. However, with a drop in lung cancer prevalence, it will most likely change the, um, the, the, the typing of lung cancer patients coming through, probably more adenocarcinomas than small cell uh, and squamous. With respect to screening, the fantastic work of the lung cancer screening program with CT scans is already here. Uh, it's likely to uh, increase. So you may not be a, a lung cancer screening center at the moment, but you might be in five years from now or 10 years from now, you may need to um, incorporate patients going through screening programs into your service. It may mean additional um, theater lists, for example, um, additional um, CTs follow-up. Um, so lots of things in the screening world that may affect a service in the next five or 10 years. One of the really exciting things on the horizon is the Gallieri test, the, the blood test that you may have heard Amanda Pritchard, the new CEO of the NHS, talking about. And that's a blood test that um, may um, identify up to 50 different cancers at a much earlier stage. Uh, uh, the target is to um, have a stage shift and have 75% of all cancers being di diagnosed as stage one or two cancers. Um, and we're a long way from that at the moment, but it may be um, that in the next 10 or 15 years, we're, we're closer to that target. So lung cancer screening, whether by CT or blood test, how that's going to impact your service, what that will mean, is something that maybe we should start thinking about. Um, diagnosis that are rapid uh, and much more individualised, again, is already here. So Matt and the Manchester team have done a fantastic way of doing this, but we know that we're far from... Uh, having a uniform picture with rapid diagnosis across the country. Um, the individualized um, uh, molecular phenotyping of patients um, has again come on leaps and bounds um, over the last few years. It's likely to develop much further. How is your service going to deal with that 
um, explosion of new mutations and new potential treatments, um, as well as perhaps thinking about lung cancer as a chronic disease and retesting people uh, with the passage of time. New things with respect to treatment, again, they're already here. When I talk to medical students now, I talk to them as perhaps lung cancer being a chronic disease uh, and managing a chronic disease as we have done, for example, with HIV. Um, and um, hopefully lung cancer will be similar. Um, how are different services gonna manage that? One of the things that we're struggling with uh, perhaps locally is um, that our follow-up clinics are much larger and they're expanding and they're expanding and they're expanding. So how do we manage that? How do we manage that with our workforce? How do we manage that with our communications uh, using perhaps virtual communication uh, and clinic appointments more whilst keeping the quality um, as uh, similar to a face-to-face -face appointment? Survivorship. So with the improvement in the lung cancer pathway, um, survivorship, uh, hopefully we'll see a, a much greater cohort of people surviving lung cancer. Uh, and how do we measure, how do we improve their holistic care? Do we routinely talk about reducing the risk of heart attacks, for example, in our lung cancer patients? Should we be doing much more with respect to that holistic care around survivorship and looking at other medical problems that our patients are present to us with uh, through the lung cancer pathway. One of the things that we didn't probably have sufficient time to talk about today, and maybe this is a webinar in of, its, in of itself, is workforce. Across the NHS, um, we're short of probably at least 100,000, maybe 200,000 staff. Um, a percentage of that was within the uh, cancer pathways from you know radiographers nurses doctors pharmacists whoever it may be um, and this problem isn't going to go away so how do we adapt our services assuming that the workforce problem may be chronic um, do we use extended role practitioners um, do we have um, cancer practitioners that may be doctor and nurses or nurses that can you know extend across diagnosis and treatment um, how are we going to manage workforce? Um, because the, the the probability is is this is this is our problem to manage. We, we we're not going to be rescued um, by somebody else. Not in this slide. Um, with respect to where we, you know, looking at the horizon scanning is the role of research. We've we've seen with COVID how patients can be enrolled in research rapidly, and we can have really pragmatic trials done very quickly, which impact on um, service and interventions. Um, how can we how can we utilize that paradigm from COVID and um, have it in, in cancer uh, across diagnosis uh, and treatment? How do we increase our use of research? Um, how do we treat advanced disease and it's certainly likely that as we become adept at diagnosing cancers earlier that we will also become better at treating advanced advanced disease so you know at the moment it's primarily oligometastatic disease but it may be that we get the opportunity to treat um, uh, metastases in in several areas 
uh, and that may be a development for our services. So there's lots of fantastic things that we're going to be able to do, I hope, in 10 years. I reflected today, before today's talk, that when I first started doing lung cancer, uh, we were using uh, physical films, uh, PET, scan, PET scans were not used at the time, uh, there was not necessarily a cancer MDT, there were no targeted therapies. Um, and so we, we've come a long way in the last 15, 20 years, and we're likely to go a lot further. And actually what we do today, what we plan today will help us achieve those goals. So I think I'm going to stop there and hopefully uh, there might be one or two questions uh, in Slido. Um, and also I wanted to bring back um, Matt and anybody, any of the other speakers who may still be with us uh, to be able to take questions. I think we have a great community, don't we? Um, as, as demonstrated by today's um, uh, webinar, um, we have a great community that, that does want to improve the service. We've moved away from the nihilistic views, I hope, about lung cancer. And we're, we're now in a phase where actually people are really excited about looking after people with lung cancer, improving services. Um, there are lots of trailblazers um, and uh, it's, it's really exciting, I think, being a lung cancer lead. So Matt, I didn't get a chance to ask you this question this morning. So. Um, obviously, you're not exactly old, uh, but if you were new in post, a new consultant in post, um, leading a lung cancer service, what would you, what would, what advice might you give to somebody starting out? And I think Matt, you said there's a lot of gains to be made at the front end, and yeah. it, it can feel quite overwhelming at first. But if you want to start somewhere, um, there's probably some big wins to be made. Yeah at the front end. Is, is that about right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, right. that process of getting someone in a CT scanner that's reported and in front of, of a clinician who knows what they're doing. You sort that yeah. bit out, you'll take weeks out of the pathway in one go. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. I do think the next bit of that is that the responsibility of the rest of the pathway can't lie with an individual hospital lung cancer team. It's going to be regional solutions um, and collaborative solutions. Um, and I think that that's kind of what we've seen in, um, in the way we've approached things. So, so there's, I've got two other questions related to that. So the, the first question is, um, the cancer alliances. And actually today we didn't necessarily have anybody specifically talking about cancer alliances, but clearly you guys have, um, had a, a really good experience of cancer, the cancer alliance there. I think they pump primed yeah. um, cure program and they pump yeah. primed rapid as well. Um, and so, how do we how do we share the information of what cancer alliances are doing? Because it might be that we can, you know, kind of say, well, you know, the, the cancer alliance in Manchester did this did, did, did this for Manchester. What do yeah. you guys? How can you help us here? You know, how do we utilize? How do we Get, getting the word out i think I, I i completely agree with you um it's one of the reasons i wanted to work within the cancer alliance um they have always placed um significant importance on the pathway board so they they've got 25 different cancer pathway boards so all the major cancers but equally other they've got a young adults uh a teenager and young adults cancer board 
Um, it, they really do put a lot of emphasis on the value of those boards and they fought really hard for pathway board uh, directors to have um, paid time and have PAs to deliver that job. And the other thing that they've done is they've, which I think is quite unique when um, transformation funding will often go into pathway work, their biggest lung investment was in prehab for cancer and cure. Um, and that is really quite unique and something I, that I think they should be very proud of. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, and they're even talking now about how, as ICS systems come in, how does the Cancer Alliance truly become the cancer arm of the new ICSs? Uh, because that the pathway boards, they're, they're really clinically led. Uh, and so you can think about standards and models, but to enact that, that's the massive challenge. I don't think anywhere's uh, truly addressed that, where an alliance has real power in terms of operational, financial, and strategic direction. Um, and for Greater Manchester, that's the, it's, that's the discussion at the table at the moment. How do you do that? Um, and I think it's an exciting time. And I, I, I think cancer alliances have a, you know, they're going to be a massive vehicle uh, if we're truly going to do great things. So that might be that might be something for us at, at BTOG to think about for future conferences, maybe or webinars. I think. Yeah. Uh, and then I think the uh, next question is um, related to um, planning now today for ten years from now. So in in my little yeah. bit at the end there, I was I was thinking about the future. You know, the the, the fifty cancer blood tests, the circulating DNA the lung cancer is a chronic disease, the, you know, preventing heart attacks in lung cancer patients, all the things that maybe we're not thinking about just now, but we're going to need to prepare for. Have you yeah. had a chance to think about some of this? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, uh, you can imagine working with Richard. It's no, it's um, yeah, it's, yes. it, it's yeah. a constant discussion. Um, I guess the biggest thing for us is um, is lung health checks on a regional scale. Um, and we've spent two or three years trying to plan what it would take to do that. Uh, and Richard kind of gave a, a snapshot of the scale of it. Uh, and that's just one region. There's, there's, there's about half a million people that would be eligible in Greater Manchester for a lung health check. Um, we do about 500 surgeries a year. Uh, at our hospital and we probably add in about eight to 900 a year from rolling out a program. You know, you're talking about double tripling the volume of work. Um, and the, the solutions to that are, are quite mind blowing, but they, if you, if we're going to do it, there, it has to be something that has the economy of scale and resilience and sustainability to deliver services of that size, which are going to be a massive infrastructure investment. Uh, those solutions could be loads of different things about community diagnostic hubs and new diagnostic hubs, centres, but whatever it is, it has to have the economies of scale to deliver that. And again, I think these are regional solutions. Uh, and again, comes in, brings that cancer alliance, operational, strategic, financial oversight with actual power to enact that. Um, you know, it's, an, it's the size of the challenge in front of us is just mind-blowing but the opportunity in front of us is equally mind-blowing 
you know, we've, we've not seen, despite everybody's efforts, everything we've talked about, you know, 62 day performance has gone down. COVID has put us back 10 years. It's, you know, you're balancing it's that's on the, it, it's um, uh, sobering, but yet the opportunity, there is something that we've, we've never really had before with the lung health check programs. We could do something amazing if it's rolled out well and uh, uh, in the right way. And that's, you know, that's the next 10 years. I, yeah, no, yeah. It's very. It's all. It's very exciting. So, yeah. so I think. Um, ah, David, hello. You back? Good. Um, so, um, I think it's three fifteen, and I think it's time to 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 close out the the day. David, did you have any last thoughts or comments actually before I close up? So I just think that one of the things that we have not fixed is the variation in clinical practice and we cannot keep ignoring this, but we are. And um, I don't think we'll ever balance the system so that we have the same facilities and expertise and time for patients wherever they're first referred. And I don't think it's a solution to move everybody to big centres. So I think we've got to try to think about how we can combine our services so that instead of it's, you know, we're just doing our own patients, we're actually doing everybody's patients, if you like. And, you know, certainly with the targeted lung health check, we're planning very hard now about what it's going to look like when it's a national system. And that the discussions about national radiology reporting and national this, national the other, are the ones that are going, that are, that are obviously more likely to become a solution. So, you know, if we do have a nationally sanctioned program, it will look very different. And, uh, you know, it, it is a big challenge, but the breast cancer screening program is a huge challenge. So is the colorectal screening program and it's doing, and they're doing pretty well. So I, I'm less um, pessimistic, realize the challenges, but realize, also realize that we do need, the next generation of leads need to tackle this problem of, of the variation in in the clinical presentation of lung cancer and how it's managed. And I don't think we're there yet. We tried with the service guidance that was produced by the CEG and we'll continue to try with that. Um, but I think it's the next generation, you got you guys basically and, and people younger than you who are gonna be doing this and getting it right, hopefully. Brilliant. I'm confident. Oh, listen. <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks very much, David. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, thanks to Dawn and Gina um, and to all of our speakers today. Um, it's been a really interesting day. I think um, it's also generated a lot of uh, ideas for us, hopefully, at BTOG to support leadership in lung cancer uh, and all the leaders that we have embedded in our programs across the country. It's a really exciting time. Um, and I hope to see you all at BTOG 2022. Thank you.